You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Every so often, there comes a movie so sick, so twisted, so incredibly insane, the critics shout, Oscar calling, Oscar calling, naughty, 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 unending torment. Meet Dr. Caligari. She's chic. She's hip. She's morally reprehensible. She's evil. She's a flat-out sadist. A sex Nazi. How do I make you feel? My feelings are like filthy prayers. I'm a juice dog. I'm a twitching ski ball. And you won't let me shiver. Enter her asylum where the erotic meets the psychotic. Bon appetit. She's the granddaughter of the infamous Dr. Caligari. To her, your brain's an open house. You've got to learn to just say yes. The critics cheered when Dr. Caligari took the midnight movie circuit by storm. Perhaps I should prescribe a sedative for you. Spectrum News raved over this overnight cult classic. This movie screams art. And MTV went crazy over the Caligari Asylum. Fetching Madeleine Raynal plays the granddaughter of the evil German scientist, and she's got plans to bring him back in a big way. Variety called it a twisted, skewed, day-glow visual explosion reflecting a mad world. I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. The LA Times stamped its approval, consistently outrageous and imaginative. I call it disgusting. The Toronto Festival of Festivals screamed pop expressionism with a 90s feel. You scratch my itch. Dr. Caligari scored three and a half stars from the Seattle Times, who praised it for a winning combination of nightmare and wit. Get a grip. The Arizona State Press gave it an A, and the Toronto Globe and Mail recommended it as sexy, surrealistic, and outrageous. I'm on a radiation vacation, soaking up the gammas. Dan Pearson of the New City described it perfectly as terminally hip. Funny thing about desire, if it's not crude, it's not pure. On college campuses, she's the new homecoming queen. She's got style. She's got class. She's got people talking everywhere. Excitement's the essence of life. When it's over, you're dead. She's racy, irreverent, and radical. Dr. Caligari. The twisted passions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The all-consuming hunger of eating Raul. And the outrageous excess of pink flamingos. Describe your life in three words or less. She's the surrealistic psychiatrist with the totally camp couch. Dr. Caligari. She's got the cure for midnight madness. Surprise! Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is on assignment this week trying to find out how many licks it takes to reach the center of a Tootsie Roll pop. Instead, this week, I am joined by the hostess with the mostess, Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, and if it makes anybody feel more comfortable, you can call me Heather St. Mary. If it's a more nurturing, comfortable environment for you, I'm totally fine with that. Sounds very holy. It's Well, then maybe you should call me something else. <laughs> maybe we'll stick to Drain then. <laughs> This week we are looking at the 1989 film Dr. Caligari, something of a sequel to the 1920 Robert Wine film. The 1989 movie looks at the granddaughter of the titular Caligari, who's played by Madeleine Raynal. The film may be named after her, but it's really the story of Mrs. Van Houten, who's played by Laura Albert, a patient of Dr. Caligari's who has a disease of the libido. 
Much of this episode is going to harken back to one we did a few years ago, the film Night Dreams, which was also written by Dr. Caligari's writer-director Stephen Sadian and his partner in crime, Jerry Stahl. The two films concern a character named Mrs. Van Houten, who's a patient in a mental institute, and both films begin with similar lines. I know you're watching me. Heather, when was the first time you watched Dr. Caligari, and what did you think? Well, it's funny because my first awareness of Dr. Caligari was back, probably I'd say in the early 90s, via an issue of Fangoria, where they had interviewed uh, executive producer Joseph F. Robertson. And there was a great still in the magazine of Fox Harris's head on a platter in the refrigerator. And that always stuck with me. I, I was like, I must see this movie. But I've, unfortunately, I was not able to get a copy to see it until probably about the mid to late 2000s. Uh, in fact, it was the last of the major Sadian films I ever got to see, strangely enough. But uh, my impression of it was um, it, it lived up to every manic, neon dream expectation in my head. <laughs> I remember seeing this one at a video store. There was this great video store that I found very mainstream, but somebody was stocking it with some great stuff. It was, uh, for those in Detroit, it was in... I think it was Royal Oak or maybe Berkeley. It was on Woodward, maybe around like 11 or so, right by a Murray's Auto. I'm sure that there's probably like a, a Trader Joe's there now or something. But it was a great store because I, I went in there and yeah, it had all the mainstream hits and stuff. But then that's actually where I saw uh, the Final Combat by Luc Besson. There was um, the Pornographers, the Japanese film. So just so many great things that were in there, including Dr. Caligari. And that's where I finally saw it. So it was probably like 96, 97, something like that. For some reason... I just totally missed it when it was playing in the early 90s, when it made a big splash at the Festival of Festivals in 89, and then had uh, you know, it was written up in Film Thread and all this stuff, and I just was completely oblivious to it. So when I saw this video box cover, my first thought, I will be completely honest, my first thought is, what kind of a-hole thinks that they have the right to remake The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Oh, I, I, I'm betting that was not your, uh, your thought after you finished the film. No. One of my thoughts while I was watching it was, was this at one time a pornographic film that had been censored or you know, where there were multiple versions of it? Because it felt like we're riding the edge of adult entertainment into more of a cultish type film. And I know that, yes, a lot of cult films will play with expectations and titillation and all this kind of stuff. I mean, look at Rocky Horror, you get a lot of, you know, sex or implied sex kind of scenes, more, more implied sex, obviously. You don't really get bare boobs, you don't get a lot of oral, uh, you don't get uh, big tongues licking people, these kind of things. <laughs> so, you know, this one was very unusual for me where I was just like, oh, wow, okay, there's there's bare boobs, and um, at one point, and it feels like it's, it's really raunchy, but it's not showing me anything. And I like when films are able to do that. You know, sometimes I think that people think that they see more 
uh, smut than they actually do just because of things being implied. And it feels like somebody could describe this as a dirty movie, even though it's really not that dirty. No. Well, to me, that's actually one of the things I've always loved about Stephen's work in general, uh, whether it's Cafe Flesh or, or Dr. Calgary, is that the sexuality is not the typical kit and caboodle steak and sizzle. It, 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 there's something always a bit skewed. There's a skewed libido aspect to it and to me the brilliant thing about that is anybody that you know would rent that movie and thinking all right titties you know or oh yeah i'm gonna you know (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna see something real raunchy and have a good time they're they're gonna be thrown off there's gonna be just so much strangeness and surrealism that it's totally gonna ruin their night of masturbation it's a complete antonin arto move of eroticism which i uh i fully endorse i think it's healthy Reminds me of Nelson coming out of uh, Naked Lunch going, I can think of at least two things wrong with that title. It's funny because it's a very sexual movie in a lot of ways, but um, but it's interesting that it's like the only R-rated film on the filmography. And there's so many echoes back to Night Dreams. I mean, we talked about Night Dreams a long time ago on the show, and Night Dreams has a very similar setting. We're at an insane asylum in Night Dreams, and we have this character, Mrs. Van Houten. Now, Mrs. Van Houten does not start in the asylum in this film. She's brought into the asylum by her husband. And I guess picking up on the Rocky Horror Picture Show thing, I was thinking uh, shock treatment as I'm watching this because I was more familiar with that film than I was with Dr. Caligari at this point. So that was interesting that she's taken into the hospital and we get to see that that reasoning why. And basically he's afraid of her sexuality. She is just way too sexual for him. She's having some interesting hallucinations, I have to say. I mean, one of the first things that we see in the film is um, an open sore that she's seeing, and then she has it on her body. There's a lot of transference going on in here. And I love that the movie begins with eight minutes where we get no dialogue, just these gorgeous images. And the whole thing, just describing it for folks who haven't, maybe seen this yet the whole thing takes place on a soundstage i mean you get everything is controlled everything is artificial you know and i was reminded of uh like a, a guy madden film in that way everything is built for the camera and i love those kind of movies where we are living in a world that is completely controlled like that oh absolutely well and that's kind of a great route back to the german expressionists where you know every all the sets are not only it's not just your typical like hollywood or movie style artificial sets where yeah everything's built i mean like windows are painted on a wall and so everything it's like you that's a window but that's not a window you know i mean it's like it's it, everything is like a fun house and you get a funhouse view of like this this world and the setting, and um, that's to me like I love that. I mean, because pretty much all, all of Stevens' films have that great look to them. They all are very distinctive looking, but they all have the artificial sets, you know, and uh, and are just so creative. And to me, just a really great mixture between like European expressionism and surrealism and American pop culture. It's it's a great symbiosis. Stephen's work is super surrealistic and very artificial in the best use of the term artificial. And this does kind of, yeah, amp it up. And this does go right back to 
like Weimar cinema. And because we've seen skewed sets and we've seen the, the, the strange worlds that he's created. But in this, yeah, we're really seeing these kind of like uh, so many of these uh, doorways that are just like, you know, like, I guess you could describe him as like a Tim Burton type doorway, like the little man who comes in to marry Beetlejuice and Winona Ryder at the end of Beetlejuice. It's like that kind of thing where you have like the one side is higher than the other. And so it's just, uh, he, you know, this is the perfect story, I think, for Stephen to be telling because this is really calling, making all these references back to this artificiality. But it's his toolbox by now. You know, he's this is his third film out where he's, you know, essentially, you know, he didn't direct the first film, but he essentially kind of did, and he was doing all the art direction and doing, you know, the co-writing and everything. He had directed Cafe Flesh, and he's directing Dr. Caligari, and this is right in his wheelhouse. I couldn't think of a better person to make these nods back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I don't feel, view this film so much as a sequel as I do as a spiritual sort of air. Because to oh, me, yeah. it's sort of like what... Uh, what Sadian did with this film is what any any artist worth his or her salt does, which is like, for example, it's like, you know, Hordorowski was obviously very influenced by Buñuel and Dali. However, when you see a Hordorowski film, like any of the major, any of the canon films, you immediately are like, that's Hordorowski. You know it, you can smell it, you can taste it. And that's the same thing with Steven's work is every everything Steven touched, you can immediately look at it and go... That's Stephen Sadian. And to me, when an artist can do that, that is, it's like a gift. It's like they're giving you a gift because they, they give a shit enough to make something that's you know, truly worthwhile and worth your time. You don't get that in this film. It wasn't like I was looking at this going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right out of this. Okay, that's right out of that. I mean, what it was was this is a continuation of the work. This felt very much like a third piece to what he had done already starting in Night Dreams, working into Cafe Flesh, and this just felt seamless. It felt a little strange, I'll admit, to not have the amount of pornography that the first two films did, but it works. It completely works to be titillating rather than full-out pornography, just because it, it, it serves the story, I think. Yeah, well, and I think part of that reason is that even even with the hardcore films, uh that Steven worked on the, the sex is never really the main, the sex is a strong element without however being the main focus as far as like, it's, it's a color to paint with, but it's not necessarily, you know, there's a huge difference between watching cafe flesh and say, you know, even something classy like Barbara broadcast, like the Radley Metzger film, which I mean, which is a film I love to death. And I mean, I would call that art too, but that's a film where the number one emphasis is eroticism and say, and the direct sexuality and human contact where with, with like cafe flesh and night dreams. And even to some lesser degree, the party doll go, go films. I mean, the sex is just an element. I mean, it's there and it's, it's, you know, there's, yeah, it's explicit, but, um, but it's, it's not, it's not eroticism. It's there to throw you off kilter. It's sort of just another kind of cool, surreal element of this universe that he has created. So as we're introduced to this world, like I said, there's no dialogue for the first eight minutes of this. And we really kind of are introduced to a lot of the major characters, or at least introduced to what I would consider the three major characters right in this opening. We're seeing, um, 
Gus Pratt, who's played by John Durbin, who to me, and I don't know if you got this one too, but I was reminded, he reminded me a lot of Charlie Manson. <laughs> I, I love that. No, because uh, I, I saw in your notes, because one of the absolute first scenes you see, the inmates, and they're all women, and sort of in the, in the middle, it's almost like a, a cult picture. It's almost like a religious picture you know, relic pictures. I mean, where Gus is right in the center, like this demented, holy figure. And, um, Gus also reminded me a lot of, um, physicality wise of almost like an Egon Schille painting. I hope I'm saying his last name, right. I feel like I always get painters names wrong, <laughs> but, but he's got the physicality of like a Schille, um, and it's that maybe there's a little bit of Manson. There's obviously a lot of Albert Fish uh, while we're talking serial killers uh, as far as predilection towards inserting various still pins into one's genitals and buttocks. And I believe Albert Fish was a cannibal. Charlie didn't like to get his hands too dirty. He had the family. I think it was more him being surrounded, Gus being surrounded by these yeah. women is really kind of, and it felt like, it felt like he was the cock of the walk. It felt like he was the, the one rooster in this Caligari hen house. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And John Durbin, I mean, if I, if I had to pick like my top five performances out of like the Sadian catalog, he's easily in the top five. I mean, he is the cock of the walk. And um, one thing that's kind of cool about Durbin that I don't think a lot of people know is that um, he had previously worked with Steven on stage. Like, Steven's done a lot of theater work. And that's a lot of the stuff he did in the 80s, kind of in that mid-period, especially between, like, Cafe Flesh and Calgary, which which also probably explains why the sets in Calgary are just so evocative and, and also some of the acting style and, and physical movements are very sort of stage-like in the best of ways. But yeah, John uh, was in a play that Stephen directed called uh, Jackie Charge. Uh, and that was in 1985. So I had worked with Stephen for a few years uh, before he was Gus. And uh, man, what a performance. I love him in this film so much. You've dreamed of this, haven't you? Oh, like forever. In my dream, you strapped me in the big chair, okay? You push me down and I go like, whoosh, them sewing needles. Then you sneer at me. Then you turn the power on till it makes me squeeze like a little bunny with a car antenna stuck plumb through its beaten heart. Edible hysteria, Mr. Pratt. Pathological daddy lust. A little cognitive dysfunction. But we're not going to let that make us late for the parade, are we? No, ma'am, I'm spunky. My pappy was spunky. Used to call him Bongo around the neighborhood, Bongo or Glug Glug, because every Saturday he'd give us kids each a nickel to Bongo as Glug Glug. Histrionic, narcissistic, like birthday parties? How do you know? I love him. In fact, right now I'm going to sit in this here frying seat, squeeze my eyes right shut, and pretend it's you and me just a humming and a buzzing side by side, having a race like the season brain starts to smoke first. Look, Caligari, there's a puff coming out of your ears, pretty as a mountain sunset. Not only is his performance great, but the way that he is shot just emphasizes some of those, you know, because some of his movements are huge because he's in such tight close-ups. Yes, his physicality is tremendous, and there's so much physicality to all of these performances that just... uh, because I can see, I will will put this out there, I can see this movie turning off people (laughs) because of the way that, especially once that dialogue starts... We are really asked to accept this world, and I can see some people not accepting this. I can see some people really being turned off by the staginess of it. And I don't mean stagey in terms of, you know, I'm in a theater, 
but there is some of that there, but it is really just this artificiality. I mean, we're living in an artificial world. Everybody has this kind of affect to them that just it, – it's going to ask a lot of people. And I can see somebody who doesn't want to give this movie – you know, 15 minutes just saying, no, I can't handle it because you're definitely working with a different rhythm of speech. You're not working with naturalistic speech. You know, this is not mammoth that we're talking about here. This is, this is more like, you know, uh, like an Alfred Jerry play or something. This is really very hyper stylized. Well, I mean, some people just, you know, they can't handle 15 minutes of heaven. I mean, it's their loss, you know, if you want to see something that is unusual, but also something that is like that to me, you know, great art is like, to me, feels like an act of respect, you know, like you're not being played for a chump when someone makes something that's really interesting. Like, you know, that's why I love Cassavetes, too. I love all the guys and women who are like, Here, you know what? I'm not going to treat you like a rube. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to treat you like an equal. And uh, and I'm going to show you some things you're not prepared for. But, you know, it's OK. You know, I'd rather see something I'm unprepared for than something I expect. We've talked on the show before about movies that you really have to work for, like really put in your homework and really, you know, study up on them, that kind of thing. That's not Dr. Caligari. You're not going to be asked to, you know, take an SAT test at the end of this film or something, but you do need to put in a little bit of effort. I will say that Dr. Caligari is much more inviting to someone uh, than like a like a fire walk with me as far as you know that is a very dense text mm-hmm. to me Caligari does have a lot of denseness to it but you can look at it on the surface and be okay the more I watch this movie though I will say the more I get out of it the more connections I get and I think that's just because it's very cleverly written and there's a lot of nice echoes that are going on in here you know I mentioned the line I know you're watching me or I can feel you watching me and we get that line echoed quite a few times from different characters which makes sense because as this goes along some of these characters Characters are going to start swapping places. Some of the characters are going to be very, let's say, influenced by other characters. So it's just, it's kind of neat that the way that we are building this and you really feel, you get the introduction to the characters as I've talked about, and then you kind of really get where the acts are coming from. You really get um, some great set pieces. I mean, you can't talk about Dr. Caligari without talking about a you know wall that has a tongue to it. You know, there's just beautiful things going on here. Yes, I know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you could take any frame from this film and show it to somebody, and they're they're either instantly going to be like, "I must see this right now, give it to me," or they're going to go run home to their Mary Kay collection and and read a Bible passage. But to me, that's a hallmark of any film worth seeing, really. But yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely brilliant. It's um. You know, the the cool thing about it, too, is that, um, you know, with the whole repetition is that when you study, when you've seen a number of Stevens films, there are like references that keep popping up. I mean, like we've mentioned Night Dreams, where one of the, you know, we're Mrs. Van Houten in that one. There's, are you watching me? And there's a constant sort of play of like voyeur. And, you know, the voyeur, the voyeur, with the doctors watching Mrs. Van Houten. And early on, like in that intro sequence, Mrs. Van Houten is watching herself 
while she's being mounted basically by a murderous looking Bob's big boy. Uh, <laughs> which again, I fully endorse. This is, I mean, you know, anybody listening to this, if you hear that statement, you should be like, I must see this right now. But um, if you have any sense at all, but uh, you know, you have that. I mean, even um, there's even like some visual to me references to cafe flesh, like, uh, you know, towards the end where Ramona, the character of Ramona is trying to rescue her father, Dr. Aval, played by Fox Harris, who's now become Babs, a Mamie Van Doren meets Ethel Merman, <laughs> to quote, to paraphrase the baby type, and she and she's trying to will him out on a dolly past all the inmates. But the way that it's slowed down and the way that the inmates are kind of interacting with with her is is very very similar to you know when you find out at the end of Cafe Flesh that Lana is a sex positive, and she's like moving almost sonambula style. Yeah, which is perfect for Calgary, uh, towards the stage. We talked about the introduction of Gus, about the introduction of Mrs. Van Houten, and we, of course, have Dr. Caligari in here. And Dr. Caligari, as I said before, being played by Medline Renal, has this great look to her. She is wearing these very angular clothes. Uh, all of her outfits are killer. All the outfits throughout the movie are killer. The costumes in this are just amazing. She's usually wearing this... How would you describe the color? I mean, it's pink, but it seems more like... I don't know. Like, it's like uh, offensive pink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, like if I have an upset stomach, I'm going to drink something that is this it's, color pink. Yeah, I mean, none of, none, nothing is natural in this world. And that comes right down to the color schemes and the way people interact and the way they dress. And, with, and of course, with Calgary, that has to be amped up times nine. And she is almost always smoking. It took me a while before I realized that almost through the entire movie, her right hand is up. She's either smoking and has that right hand up there holding that cigarette, or later on, she's got a big syringe. And I just love that she uses the same kind of motion for her hand, whether she's got a cigarette in it or a needle. And it just kind of really is synonymous with her character. It's really symbolic of what she is all about. Oh, yes. No, I thought Renault was so, I mean, just her physicality, her delivery, you know, because to, to be able to kind of deliver that type of dialogue, the dialogue that, you know, Stephen and Jerry Stahl created, I mean, it takes a special kind of actor. I mean, not just anybody you know, can pull that kind of dialogue off. It's a bit like freeform jazz, you know, I mean, you know, not everybody's going to be Ornette Coleman and pull off an Ornette Coleman move. And um, so to pull off that kind of dialogue and make it work for you, um, you got to have something. And I thought, I thought she did a really great job because it's such a weird, the character's intentionally kind of weird and sinister and very funny. And just, she's like a, I don't she's almost like an, an angular German cartoon character. Like, which I love. It's it's weird because the only other thing that I could find that she's done film-wise was uh, that movie Space Mutiny, which a lot of Mystery Science Theater fans will probably instantly recognize because uh, she plays one of the Valerians. She plays the chief Valerian, in fact. So if you've seen that movie, it's a very surreal experience to see her in that and be like, oh my God, that's, that's Madeline Renault from Dr. Calgary. 
So after we get that intro, that's when we really start to get into the plot. And we, I talked a little bit about Mr. Van Houten not being able to handle his wife's new sexuality. There's also a plot that's going on between um, who you mentioned, Dr. Aval, uh, his It's his daughter and his daughter's husband, correct? Mm-hmm. Who is uh, Dr. Adrian Lodger. And I, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to ask him if it was a reference to Hitchcock in the film The Lodger. But it feels like it should be, if not. That's a really cool theory to me, because that never occurred to me. But it's it's definitely possible. I mean, I certainly loved the whole look of Adrian's character. Where, I mean, he looks like a G-man. And he talks like a G-man. He's like straight out of like a 40s. In a previous life, he was a gumshoe, but now, you know, he's working at a, you know, the CIA Caligari's Insane Asylum and, um, and is chain smoking. There's a lot of cigarette smoking oh, in, this, yeah. in this film anyways. But yeah, no, I thought those two, I liked the synchronicity of those two characters of him and Ramona because they're constantly sort of mirroring each other. There's a musicality almost at times where they'll say the same lines at the same time, um, which is almost sort of a throwback to the cowgirls and um, night dreams. I like both of those actors, Jennifer Balgobin, who played Ramona. To me, she seemed to have the most trouble kind of handling some of the Sadie and Stahl dialogue. And I mean, and she's good. I mean, she's, she's in a lot of Alex Cox's films. She's in straight to hell, which also has Fox Harris. Repo Man, Repo Chick. Well, I haven't seen Repo Chick, but I liked her in Repo Man and Straight to Hell. Again, it, that's dialogue that is not easy to pull off. If you can do it, you, you got to be a Fox Harris, you know? Yeah, when he's introduced, it is a real treat. He really just kind of chews it up and spits it out. He's just fascinating to watch. I, every minute that he's on screen, I just love it. And and likewise, I love every scene that Laura Albert is in. She just does such a great job. And just, again, with the way that she's able to deliver some of those kooky lines, I just love it, man. She just... And, and with the physicality and everything, when she's talking about how she's got an EKG that people can dance to and starts doing some those moves. Nothing beats setting up camp in the desert at night, just toasting s'mores and getting glowy. Baby, we have to talk. I'm on a radiation vacation, soaking up the gammas. All the he-men do their bomb testing just over the ridge there. Can't you smell it? Baby, I talked to Dr. Caligari this morning. She wants you back there for a couple days, a week at the most. I know you're watching me. There's a possibility that your problem is coming back. Dr. Caligari would like you in for observation. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just little Miss Suburbia, two jean pots and a purse full of credit cards. My husband had an erection once. Silly, really. I want you to go upstairs and pack a suitcase. I'm taking you back there. The swicker is my vortex. See the neon? I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. I had a legendary twitch in Nagasaki. Uh Uh-huh. Everybody limbo, yes. Yeah, no, and the thing I like about her performance, especially the more that I've watched the film, is to me it's almost like a good sort of amalgam between um, Dorothy LeMay's performance, which I thought Dorothy LeMay was great at Night Dreams. I thought she she was fantastic. And she's got some of that unhinged sexuality, which Dorothy had, but it's also she's got a lot of the fear when you go back to the original Dr. Calgary, the cabinet of Dr. Calgary, with uh, the character of Franz, 
who's, you know, who ends up being our unreliable narrator. To me, it's almost like a perfect blend of those two, because, you know, when you watch The Cabinet, I mean, there's a lot of, like, that actor that plays Franz has lots of great big eye, and, I mean, I love silent films anyways, because all the facial gestures, and I thought Laura's performance is a really good mix of those two, and then when she becomes Gus, that was great. I mean, that's a... You know, her performance is one I think I appreciate the more I watch the film. I mean, I think I liked it when I first watched it, but the more that I've gone back to that film, I just, I love it more and more. Well, it took me a long time to realize that she's also the woman on TV. I mean, she looks so different with just not that many changes, but she can really make herself look different. Yeah. Yeah, and just the the acting, and I love I love the look on her face towards the end with like Gus, who is now sort of an amalgam of her, is trapped in the cell with Les Van Houten, who's scared, you know, and she's like behind these bars, and she just has like this demonic grin on her face because now she's a cannibal as well, and it's just the way that she does that, it just it cracks me up. She's fantastic. The king of the film is definitely Fox Harris. I mean, I could watch him for five hours. He's <laughs> he's just one of those guys. Caligari, Dr. Caligari herself is very much a spider at the center of a web. What she is doing to these characters, I mean, she she literally has Mr. Van Houten tied up at one point, and it's just like he is completely powerless to stop her, and because now she has her claws into Mrs. Van Houten, she's a fascinating subject. Dr. Caligari has this whole thing where she is able to, what is it, a glandular extract, where she's able to take people's, um, for lack of a better term, their their vital um, the essence. bodily fluids. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids their bodily fluids from one person inject them into another person with some nice effects too i have to say some nice needle effects going on here and i really like the effect of uh, mrs van houten's forehead kind of throbbing after she gets a good implant of gus so it's almost like one of these like um like a sci-fi farce kind of thing where you have people going in and out of the teleporter or the uh the transference machine you know and getting people's personalities moved from one body to another you know it's almost uh a little all of me kind of thing happening here. You put Edwina back in ball. Back in ball. Edwina back, back in ball. ball. That is just such a great way for these actors to show us what they've got when they're able to inhabit these other characters so well and pick up on those mannerisms. You know, people always talk about how that's the best part of Face Off, the John Woo film, is seeing Nicolas Cage and John Travolta play each other. And this, to me, is even more effective seeing these really quirky characters being able to just completely adopt other people's personality traits and we're getting people's bodily fluids swapped all over the place i guess this is where the bodily fluid transfer is it's not necessarily from, <laughs> like it is in cafe flesh it's, sure. it's done in a much more uh 
much more uh, convenient way in this one. It's great to see how she's manipulating people, and uh, and ultimately herself is uh, she falls victim to her own diabolical plan. But just uh, gosh, yeah, it's great to see that transference, of course, of of uh, Fox Harris going into that Mamie Van Doren Ethel Merkel oh. thing. Oh wow! Oh my God, I. Uh... I just I have like little cartoon hearts every time <laughs> I see Fox Harris well in anything, but when he turns into Babs, he's just he's so delightful and just um that's yeah, that would be if I had to t- like teach a course on like how to be a good actor chewing the scene as opposed to an actor chewing the scene in a way that's doesn't fit the film or throws off everybody else's rhythm, I would show them that because he's you know, he just eats it up but it's perfect. And uh, you know, and I love I love it, and it's kind of also it's so interesting to me, just like how you have like you have swapped gender roles. You also have like a lot of like disease, sexual disease imagery, because even right. early on, you know, uh, when Van Houten has like you know sort of the hallucination of like this nipple like formation on her ankle and it's oozing. I mean, like that's not really supposed to ooze. And you have the wall of flesh later on where there's just like, I mean, like can't like what well, looks like an open sore with candy and corn, like oozing out. <laughs> and even when the giant mouth is licking her, there's like sores around it. So you really get, this is like, this is what happens with repressed suburban, you know, status quo sexuality is it makes you, you know, it just makes you completely insane. Oh yeah. And her, <laughs> her arm, Mrs. Van Houten's arm turning into that weird phallus thing. The pickle penis. I know. At first I was like, it's a giant pickle. And I was like, Oh, hold on. Wait a minute. That's, um, that ain't no deal. You know, it's uh, poor, poor Mr. Van Houten, a man who's already feels emasculated and has the big fear of being emasculated by his wife's, Sex, voracious and strange sexuality ends up getting the biggest straight heterosexual male fear of them all, which is forced anal penetration. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, he might get eaten after that. We're not really sure. But mesquite, mesquite grilled. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what a way to go, though. You know, if, you, <laughs> if, if you're going to go, out, might as well get put on a spit. Oh. Or turn into a good stew. Gus likes his stews. He loves his, but remember, you you never you never boil the peepers. According to Gus, the only proper way to serve an eyeball is sautéed. Gus sometimes, to me, feels like he's an escapee from a John Waters film. You could see him pulling off a great David Lockery role, and that's a huge compliment for me because I love, love, love David Lockery. Um, of course, I love John Waters, but um, Gus is just, yeah. I mean. The whole Juice Dogs line, you know, is fantastic. And it's, it's such a great marriage between the writing is on point and the actor is on point. It's like, it's like the happiest moment when you have those two elements, when everybody's on their A game. Yeah, and him making a little nod to A Thousand Points of Light. You know, <laughs> here we are in 1989. I was like, oh, that's so nice. And, you know, the thing is just the, the little stabs at American safe culture you know because the thing like uh i don't know if a lot of people know this i mean steven's part of steven's background was in advertising i mean like back when he worked at hustler he did a lot of the ads and anybody who's looked at an old issue of hustler if you see an ad in there that's really strange and hilarious dollars to donuts it's a sadian ad like steven's ads are great but there's like a lot like from the beginning where you see that syringe that says that you know was it better living through chemistry that is a riff on the old dupont advertising line 
And then you have the whole baby face mask, which isn't, isn't maybe for legal reasons, it's not a total Bob's big boy mask, but it's a little curly cue. I thought, I definitely thought of Bob's big boy, which is a, a character that came up in a pictorial that Steven did for Hustler in 1984 for the red, white acrylic dream uh, spread, which had uh, text written by Jerry Stahl. Look for the July 1984 issue of Hustler. It's one of the best. And now speaking of people whose names we've read, but we've never actually said, I always thought that the Sonambulist in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari was Cesare. I never thought it would have been pronounced Cesare. I know that actually, you know, it's funny because this whole time I've been probably because I'm from Arkansas, I've been pronouncing it Caesar because, you know, it's not my fault. Okay, my family suffered. But like, I just found it recently though that uh, another friend of mine actually the whole time she insisted that the pr- correct pronunciation of the original Captain Don Calgary was Cesare as well. So we may have learned something new. What do you make of his character? Uh, he's uh, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, he's he's not he's certainly not the Conrad Vades. Cesare, um, certainly, but he's almost like this fantastic sort of effete, um, and there's a reference to dinner theater in there, which is great, but he, he reminds me of sort of like anybody who's done local theater, you always have that one guy who's very, like, he's very educated in effete, and he has this great voice, and he can talk like this, and he's very, you know, and, um, and just, uh, he, I thought, I thought he was hilarious. I kind of almost wish we would have seen him a little more. I, uh, I I liked him quite a bit. He's always a delight when he shows up on screen. And I love the weird little, like, Cupid doll. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that hairstyle. It's got, like, a Cupid doll hairstyle. And just, uh, yeah, no, he's he's fantastic. And that's, um, I would, I don't know this for sure, but I would not be surprised if that was another one, like John Durbin, who worked with Steven on stage. Because that guy just has... That presence and voice of like that guy totally was a great theater actor. You know, you just see some movie actors where you can just tell. I bet they would be amazing on stage, and he's he's certainly one of them. We got to talk about the music. Music has always been such a major part of Steven's work. Uh, you know, the score for Cafe Flesh is just well, the score for all of his films is amazing. But yeah, the music in this one. I kept being reminded of the score for Liquid Sky while I was watching this. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I would say it's a good thing, but I like Liquid Sky. Um, yeah, no, the Mitchell Froome, who did uh, the music for both Flesh and uh, Calgary, I mean, fantastic producer and musician. Um, another great job done, certainly. And um, the thing tied in with the music and you kind of alluded to this earlier Mike which I love is that um, there's always an interesting audio choice made in every Sadian film like sometimes it might just be like a weird sound effect sometimes it's like layering of sounds like in um like in one of the Party Dollar Go-Go films during one of the sex scenes, I mean, you hear like animal sounds and you know, stuff like that. It's like, it's really, it throws you off, but in a good way. And I love, I love art like that. And there's definitely like a lot of kind of cool at times, weird ambient noises, especially in the beginning with Van Houten in the intro. It just, um, you know, that between that and the lighting, I always feel like the two most underlooked at elements of filmmaking are lighting and audio. Uh, especially with more newer films, most people don't, you know, they don't understand how to light things to, for them to really pop. 
all of Steven's stuff is always lit really good. There's always a lot of color contrast and there's always a lot of sh- shapes and shadows. And then the audio reflects that, whether it's a really cool kicky piece of music or, or just like, uh, you know, just random ambient sounds being layered. Sadian has always had like ties to the music world. Like, uh, for any of you Walla Voodoo fans out there, which if you're not, what's wrong with you? Walla Voodoo were a fantastic and underrated band from the 80s. There's a Walla Voodoo connection to Dr. Calgary. Um, one was Steven actually directed the music video for their cover of, Brian, of the Beach Boys song, Do It Again. And if you watch that music video, which is on YouTube, you see imagery that's from Calgary. Because, you know, at one point you see a poster that Calgary has sent Dr. Aval. Uh, of like this big-eyed keen girl. Oh God, I love that. Isn't she great? And then you later on kind of see her briefly when she, you know the hallucination where the girl's wearing a, the mask of that face, and she's lifting up, and there's like a lamb's head or a sheep's head, and um, that girl pops up a lot in the Do It Again video. And there's also a scene where Chaz T. Gray, who is Walla Voodoo's keyboardist, is is tied up um, in a similar style that uh, Mr. Van Houten is right before uh, Gus and uh, Mrs. Van Houten get switched. Both Bruce Moreland, uh, who is Walla Voodoo's bassist, uh, is credited as associate art director on this film. And his brother, Mark Moreland, who is one of the most underrated guitarists ever, just putting that out there because it's true, uh, is also credited as, I believe, a paint, like the set painters. So, uh, so yeah, there's uh, a, uh, some heavy Walla Voodoo connections to this film. Did Steven direct the, the uh, Mexican radio video? Uh, I believe he co-directed that with Francis D'Elia. Okay. They did a lot of stuff together, I believe also at Hustler at some point. But that was, uh, but yeah, which of course you see that video and there's a, a lot of, you know, it doesn't surprise you that Steven's attached to it. There's a lot of great surreal imagery, particularly with the door that you see cut out. It's a very expressionist looking door that's behind that group. Going back to what we're talking about with the uh, the wall of mouth rather than a wall of voodoo, <laughs> mouths are so important for this movie, and there's so much, um, you know, it's obviously Mrs. Van Houten is not getting it from her husband the way that she should. Right. And she is very into the idea of you know being satisfied in this way and i love that we have the mouth on the television that we have the mouth on the wall and just so many mouths in this movie you know obviously the smoking is going on all the time there's very much an oral thing going on in here and that we have mr van houten actually having his mouth removed at one point so good so bloody good there's just so many things in this movie that you can just watch it over and over again and pick up on this stuff and i just love that there's this consistency to it and it's one of these things where you really kind of know that the director wants you or is okay with you finding this stuff wants you to make these connections it's not like i don't think that these things were just randomly thrown in there right no no everything has a place and a purpose and the thing one of the things also is like everything is just so layered with sadian's work which is part of many many parts of his genius and i mean like even with art references because like when you first see dr aval and i mean and there's fox harris looking total swanksville shaking a martini shaker that great grin that great las vegas grin of his which is amazing but you see all these shrouded figures behind him and to me you know that almost like sort of throws back to somebody like magritte 
you know, where you have like a lot of, you know, those great paintings of people in shrouds. The idea of using people as works of art, as furniture, as decoration. I mean, yeah, just brilliant, brilliant stuff and just so striking. The whole film. I mean, that's why it's, you know, he's an, he's an artist. A lot of, I hate when people sort of balk at using that word or arts and get very pretentious about it. Like, oh no, it has to be, you know, stuffy or it has to be this or that. And it's like, no, this guy's an artist. His work is great. So, which is why we're doing the show to, cha- to champion a work of art. <laughs> We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with writer Jerry Stahl, and the second is with writer-director of Dr. Calgary himself, Stephen Sadian, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Are you into sci-fi and like comic books? video games, movies, and books related to it? How about science? And like to keep up with space news or technology inspired by shows like Star Trek? Maybe strange subjects like aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, or conspiracies? How about board games or RPGs? If you answered yes to any or all of those, then you may like the shows of GalacticNetcasts.com. Our lineup includes The Alien Invasion, The Sci-Fi Geeks Club, Weird World Weekly, Adventure Party, and Galactic Net Bites for people with shorter attention spans. Where can I find all these, you may be asking? Well, the answer is galacticnetcasts.com. Again, 
galacticnetcasts.com. Hi, I'm Dave Nelson, founder and host of this podcast network, and I'd like to thank you in advance for listening. I wanted to ask you, how did you and Stephen, how do you pronounce Stephen's last name? Is it Sayadian? Sayadian, okay. Mm -hmm. How did you and he meet? Uh, We met when we were just kids. Uh, I took a gig writing humor for Hustler Magazine, and Steve, at like the ripe age of 20, was uh, Larry Flint, who's like the head of all advertisement and visuals for the whole magazine. He's a lot of ad parodies and... You know, I had a chance to do a lot of surreal shoots. That's where we met, in Columbus, Ohio, weirdly enough. And you grew up in, what, Pittsburgh? I grew up in Pittsburgh and then lived in New York for a long time and then uh, ended up in Los Angeles. When did you guys decide or how did you decide to start making movies together? It's just something we always wanted to do. And uh, initially, we got a bunch of money to do a very surreal movie called Cafe Flesh. But... Uh, there's a story about it in Playboy I wrote, which you can read, but it's also called Confessions of a Cult Sex King. But what happened is we took a bunch of money from essentially the mob. And after we made it, they said, uh, well, boys, we like it, but stick. It's like eight little scenes we'd like you to stick in it. So uh, we ended up making sort of a cult porn film. And uh, that was our first one. And uh, it's it, it, it failed as a porn film, but it succeeded as an art movie and replaced Pink flamingos and uh, art houses, midnight shows all over the world, weirdly enough. So Cafe Flesh was your first foray into this? Uh, I think there was one called Night Dreams before that or after that. I can't remember. But then uh, and our third one, which was uh, Caligari. I noticed that um, you kind of used the same character, Mrs. Van Houten, between Night Dreams and Dr. Caligari. Where did she kind of come from? Well, Leslie Van Houten is one of the Manson girls. So that's where the name comes from. So I suppose you could say she was inspired by uh, Uncle Charlie. She even says some of the same dialogue between the two films. What? Wow, you are truly a scholar of the arcane, man. I, I didn't know that, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, if it works once, stick it in another movie. Well, yeah, she's got that whole, I know you're watching me and uh, being observed and everything, which I found to be really kind of fascinating. That- Whoa. Yeah, that, that's kind of a theme we always worked with. We also had a play called Jackie Charge that was about a peeping Tom who became a celebrity and started a cult of uh, peeping Toms. So I imagine that you were more than just a screenwriter on these films. Did you play a role in like the casting or the direction? Oh, we were all hanging or? out together, but uh, you know, it's pretty much Steve's vision. There was a uh, movie that you and he wrote together called, or that you collaborated on called Rapid Eye Movement. Um, Do you remember what that was about? Yeah, that was based on that play. Uh, It was also about uh, Peeping Tom. Unfortunately, you know, we've had a lot of interest in people, but the lives we led were not that organized, just to put it uh, tastefully. So uh, that script got lost. How did Caligari come about? Because this one was much later than, you know, Cafe Flesh and Night Dreams were right one on top of each other, and Caligari was a few years later, definitely has a different, a little bit different tone and doesn't have the hardcore sex in it. So how did this one kind of come about? From what I can recall, there was uh, somebody with money who was deluded enough to think they could make more by financing that movie. We just went for it. and, And like I say, that look is an extension of a lot of the visual work that uh, Steve was doing. He was doing a lot of movie posters. 
uh, stuff with John Carpenter, all kinds of people, you know, uh, in Hollywood and had his own studio and with Frank DeLeo, the cinematographer. And that's the origin of that look and that style. What was your collaboration like with working with him? We always just hung out together and, uh, you know, I'm a novelist and journalist. And so I was always writing and I was just happy to collaborate. It was always kind of a wild, wild time back in those days. What other stuff were you writing around the time? Well, I was writing, I guess, for Esquire and California Magazine and Los Angeles Magazine. I you know, had some columns and just a lot of, you know, weird, funny-ass journalism. When did you um, write your first novel? Well, I wrote six of them before uh, my first book was published, Permanent Midnight, the one that got made into a movie in, I guess, 95. But the first book I got published was... Uh, Permanent Midnight, the memoir, and then, you know, after that, I've had, like, I guess, seven or eight books, novels, short stories. So you have been writing for, writing books for a long time, but were you primarily um, magazine articles before that? Well, yeah, I was a journalist before that, always trying to write books, but had to make a living. And so I did journalism, and then uh, later on got into, after working with Stiller on Permanent Midnight, you know, got into more screenplays and TV and things. When you were growing up, did you always want to be a writer? It was something you could do naked and fucked up at three in the morning. And I was a shitty guitar player. So, you know, the rock and roll wasn't happening and I didn't think I wanted a straight office gig. So uh, that's how it shook down. You know, all my idols were writers. That was back in the day of Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe and those crazy bastards. So, you know, I wanted to be like that. What are some of the articles that you're the most proud of? I had a Playboy interview with uh, Mickey Work. It was pretty intense. I had a column for a lot of years called Outer Limits, where I just basically wrote about the insanity of all the, all sort of the other Hollywood, like, you know, the guys who lived with their moms and collected Jake's heads, you know. It was sort of like, uh, I, I really was more into the underbelly than the belly. So uh, I did weird things like uh, nude dating at an Elysium at this place called uh, Elysium, which was a uh, nudist health clinic in Topanga. And I hung out there, went through all that, got rebirthed in a hydropole. It was basically just a kind of gonzo journalism where the real subject is not just who you're writing about, whether it's drive-in funerals or, you know, the mayor of Hollywood who lives in a shack behind the freeway. Um, it's just your experience of being kind of fucked up in a, in a fucked up situation, what that feels like. That was how I wrote back in the day. You talked about Night Dreams and Cafe Flesh kind of, you know, usurping um, Pink Flamingos as a, a cult movie favorites. Were they financially successful as well? I think Cafe Flesh was that we got bought out by somebody else who bought the name. I think there might have been a couple of movies afterwards, but afterwards that I, I had nothing to do with, and I don't think Steve had much to do with. I don't know. Um, so long time ago, but uh, they weren't making us a lot of money. Caligari sure did. I think we made a dime. It wasn't really about the money. How did you get involved with uh, CSI? It's sort of an odd story. I, I joined the Hollywood Y many years ago when I had no place to live, needed someone to shower, and then I kept going there. You know, when I got more solvent and things were, you know, I actually wasn't homeless. And uh, one day I'm in the sauna and reading something and this guy looks at me and turns out he's Billy Peterson. And he, he, he told me his daughter had read my first book, Permanent Midnight, and dug it in it. You know, 
he didn't think things were really happening for him right then, but in a couple of years, he was going to have a TV show. So weirdly enough, it was the odd nude encounter, strangely enough, that resulted in gainful employment. You know, a couple of years later, he, the man was worried. He just gave me a call, got me on as a consultant, and uh, that was that. And strangely, it was CBS on, I think, Thursday nights at 9, primetime. I got to do, like, the wildest, most insane stuff I ever did in my life, you know, plushies and furries and transgender operations and storage spaces and, you know, you name it. And uh, it, was, it was a great gig. Yeah, you were the one that introduced uh, Lady Heather, weren't you? That would be me, yes. One, one more bizarre thing to put on my tombstone. She was definitely one of my favorite characters, and whenever she would show up, I knew that it was going to be a good episode. They actually bought the character, so I think I, I wrote the first one. And apparently, uh, she showed up in a few more. Yeah, in fact, I kind of wish that uh, he had gone off with her when he left the show. No control over that, man. It was just they were great people to work with, and they, you know, they just let me do this stuff. How much of Permanent Midnight, the movie, is would you consider to be factual? Well, it was based on a real book. I didn't write the memoir. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't write the. I wrote the memoir. I didn't write the movie. Uh, but Stora and I, you know, worked on it a lot. And, it was definitely it was factually true to a point. You know, I was a different kind of asshole in the book than I was in the movie, but I still did a, an amazing fucking job. And, you know, I was, listen, I was thrilled. Can you tell me, what is uh, Jerry Stahl Rides Dirty with Ben Stiller, Jason Schwartzman, Michael C. Hall, and Flea? Have you seen it? I have not. Well, maybe you should see it, and you would know. It is a sh- tiny little film directed by Larry Charles. You know Larry Charles is? Yeah, he directed Borat. And Bruno and a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasms, and he's a friend of mine. And uh, it is a it's a it's a video promoting my last novel. Oh, awesome! Yeah, you should you know uh, check it out. What are you currently working on? Well, like I said, I had two novels come out in 2014, and uh, this year I'm working with my friend Mark Marin on the TV show Marin on IFC, working on another novel and a couple of movies. I guess the last thing you might have seen was the HBO movie, Hemingway and Gellhorn, with Clive Owen. It was on, I guess that was 2013. And since then, yeah, I, I, got, I go back and forth between novels and Hollywood, you know, one page or the other. Can you tell me about the, the project called Urge that you're working on? Oh, Urge, yeah. I was brought in on that to uh, just do a rewrite. It's a cool film directed by this guy, Aaron Kaufman, uh, out of New York. And, uh, you know, I didn't, generate that i just uh they brought me in to sort of kick it up a little bit at the end and rewrite some stuff it's uh it's about a drug sort of a party drug that turns out to be have the nature of an epidemic that is essentially satanically going to destroy western civilization yeah you had a great idea i can take no credit for it whatsoever i mean there's two other writers you know do you find it easier to rewrite than to come up with somebody else with an original idea um, listen, you know, you always want to, I, I used to do a ton of rewrites and, uh, you always want to be respectful. You know, nobody loves having this shit rewritten. And sometimes you're brought in when stuff is, is really great. You don't, you don't really want to mess with it, but it's, it's not really about easier. You know, it's just a different muscle. I, I just love to write and I'm, I'm lucky enough to, you know, have some, be able to make a living at it, writing anything I don't want to write, you know? Do you still do the journalism stuff? I haven't in a while. There's a, a very cool online magazine called The Rumpus, 
on and off. I've done a column there called OG Dad about uh, being a father, sort of, you know, in your 50s, the second time, and the weirdness of that. Uh, I have a collection of that coming out this year called Weird Shit Happens When You Don't Die Young. So it's, it's sort of personal journalism, you know. It's not, it's not like going out and covering a rock. And I, I, I do reviews occasionally for, like, book forum, stuff like that. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I know that the market has changed so much since you were, you know, first writing out there. I wasn't yeah. sure what it was like now. I don't know. I th- you know, the, those days may be over, you know? It's not like it used to be. Everybody's writing for free, and it's a different world. The guy the guy whose show I do, <clears throat> I write for, my pal Marin, I mean, he has, like, the biggest podcast on iTunes, comedy, you know? Oh, yeah. Marin, called, called WTF, you know, what the fuck? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great world, man. He, he is a god amongst podcasters. Oh, he is? Yeah. Well, we, we sort of, uh, you know, we're friends forever. So, it's you know, it's great collaborating with people you love. Yeah, you should check out the show if you have I think it's basic cable. Well, because he doesn't hold back about himself, it, it frees other people up. You know, Mark is, a, is pretty fearless. You know, he started out primarily as a stand-up. And if you see his actor, I guess you can check it on YouTube if you come through your town. It's just, it's not like anybody else. You know, he's just... He gets right in there to all the stuff that, that I love, the unsayable, you know, all the shameful shit nobody else will say. And, he, and he's brilliant. So I'm, I'm lucky to work with him. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of cool people. It doesn't always end up, you know, getting made or whatever, but it's, it's the process is great. Like working with Larry Charles, you know, and not like a fucking comedy genius, you know. It's, or working with Phil Kaufman, you know, the guy who did... Uh, you know, the unbearable likeness of being and right stuff. It's just like being paid to go to film school. God knows I ever did. Yeah, even looking at some of the shows that you worked on, like Twin Peaks, Northern oh, man, Exposure. I thought I was a junkie back then. I got fired from all them. And they, they, they show up on a resume, but uh, <laughs> that's back when I was turning in scripts with hair and blood on them. You don't want to know. Speaking of, of Fearless and, uh, you know, copping all your shit, it definitely sounds like you are, are uh, in that same school. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't know if my life is interesting these days, but it's a little less savage. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it, uh, it's a little more predictable as well. In a way, but you know, that's a whole other terror. You know, it's like square is the last frontier, you know? Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. Oh, this thank has been you, really man. Cool. It's really great, and I, you know, I love what you're doing. If there's anything I can do, please, please stay in touch. I knew what I wanted to do by the time I was 12 years old, and that was because of my father. He was um, a big film fan, and he had really good taste and um, very interesting taste. And he started taking me to um, the Playboy in Chicago, had a theater, the Playboy. Um, they had a theater and anything that came in from Europe and anything kind of underground and the you know, early Cassavetes and... Uh, the earliest Ken Russells and even further. And then of course, all even the Hollywood films, but all the classics, they would sometimes run all the classics from the forties and fifties in the golden age. 
instead of taking me there. Um, so I had an interest in filmmaking and images all the time. I didn't quite understand you know, when I was 12 or 13 when the director did. It took me a while before I finally realized what was going on. But I always was interested in the images and the dialogue. And on top of that, I was a child actor, quite good one. So I was always in theater, professional theater, and did all, all, sort of all, the, all the standard plays, the musicals and, you know, Thousand Clowns. And, you know, the um, yeah, I had my uh, SAG card and a SAG card, my after card. And uh, I did a lot of children's theater. So And I was really interested not only in the acting part, but in the scenic design. And I had a great acting coach. We'd go like you other kids would go to Little League, you know, teased by some friends, you know, because this was maybe 63, 64, 65. Uh, so it wasn't what most kids were doing, but I and dance, you know, as in musicals, and I was a good dancer. And then on top of that, I was absolutely obsessed with print. Um, of course, uh, specifically uh, Kurtzman with um, the early Mads the big influence and then all the subsequent magazines like help, which I loved. Uh, uh, that's where I first saw Terry Gilliam, you know, long before Monty Python, seeing some Baracek shorts at the Playboy theater at a fairly young age. So there was one once that opened, I don't know where or how, you know, that really left an impression. And, of course, the sex part, I, I was raised in a uh, Catholic school by very strict nuns, and I had an experience with a nun, fantasized about this nun. I, went, I had an order, very strict order, and they, the habits they wore were you can barely see their face, and they had these bows, huge bows, and they kind of had makeup that I swear you're not supposed to wear makeup when you're a nun, but it appeared like they were in white pancake, very uh, something right out of Amacord or something. I used to, I was missing the sixth grade, so that's the age when boys start sort of looking at girls. And I thought this one nun, you could only see a little bit of her face, but she was sort of stunning in sort of a, um, you know, Elsa She-Wolf of the Nazis kind of way. And once in a while, you would see a strand of her hair. Now, seeing a woman, a nun's hair, well, to me, that was the equivalent of seeing a pubic hair slipping out of panties. I mean, the hair that came out of her nun's habit. And I would really sort of get a bit turned on by this. You know, I mean, I'm at that age. I remember confessing it to the priest in confessional. And I mean, he was screaming at me. I mean, just absolutely, uh, I was an altar boy too. So, you know, even he knew exactly who he was talking to. And um, anyways, so this nun, she was really mean and very evil. And I'm telling you, Mike, I still have on my knuckles slight scars from how many times I was hit with rulers by this nun, which was really sexy. So one day... I was entertaining the class. She was out and I was facing away from her. And I was doing some sort of comedic routine and everybody was enjoying it. And she came in the class and she came in very quietly and all the kids could see her. But of course I was turned away. So I couldn't. And everybody started motioning to me that she was behind me, but I wasn't paying attention because you know, I was, I was performing. And then, the guy right in front of me, who was a dear friend of mine, poked me 
you know, as she was making her approach. And I turned around to kind of give him a little slap. And as I turned around to hit him, you know, just to knock it off, I looked up and she was standing over me. But at this time, my arm is in a swinging motion. And as I turn around, I see her. Now, I am telling you, as I tell you this story, it is in high speed. It's in slow motion. My arm is moving. And now I have a decision to make. Do I drop my arm or do I continue? Because my fingers were going across her nun's habit right in the breast area. And I said, what the hell, I'm going for it. So as my hand came across, I I literally passed her crucifix and went across her breast. I turned my hand and gave a slight feel and could feel each breast very gently and turned around and for a brief second. Now, to this day, I don't know if I've imagined this and it's now become reality, but I believe it was true. There was like a little eye contact. I mean, we looked at each other and I swear I saw like a Mona Lisa smile. And then I stopped and she proceeded to beat me senseless with a ruler. But I will tell you that is a true story. I mean, when my earliest masturbatory fantasies later on, I mean, I just dined out on that moment. And the best part of the story is the next year she stopped being a nun. So I would like to personally think I was responsible. I also had an exorcism exorcism performed on me. I think it was like six. I think if you look really deep in the Catholic archives, it's there. I had an exorcism uh, exorcism performed on me when I was in the sixth grade. So because I had started something called the Evil Spirits Club, two things I did, it got me in real trouble. I was an altar boy and very good one because I could speak. At that time, the masses were all in Latin, and I spoke Latin very well. I cut the wine once with wood alcohol and got in big trouble because the priest used to drink it. You would think he would have appreciated it. And then for our confirmation on Easter, everybody got a brand new cross, a little cross, 14 carat as a gift. And I was always very um, handy with arts and crafts. And just as a joke, I managed to get all the crosses that were behind that were handed out, and I made little golden calves out of aluminum foil and replaced the crosses with the golden calves and put them back in the box. And um, when they passed them out, everybody, it was a sort of like, it was like getting out World Series rings. Everybody was, you know, there, the parents, and to see the children receive the crosses when they opened up their box, they were all golden calves. So they thought I was absolutely possessed. So and the and the exorcism was very strange because what they did was they grabbed me out of class. They did not call my parents. It wasn't sanctioned. A couple of uh, brothers, you know, junior priests, like a JV priest, they grabbed me and they rolled me in a carpet, a really itchy carpet, like a, I was like a, a burrito, and they threw me under a big conference table where all the nuns were. There must have been 15 nuns around the conference table. All I could see were their orthopedic shoes and hosiery and their black habits. And then the priests actually, two priests actually did the standard, you know, Father Marin readings. And I was below just, instead of throwing a pea soup, I was, you know, giggling hysterically. I mean, it was, it was just, 
And I later came home at the end of the day, and I remember at the dinner table, mom and dad said, how was school? And I said, it was terrific. I said, I had an exorcism. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I had an exorcism. I said, they performed. They said, why? They said, I had an evil spirit. They had to get out. My parents, you know, passed the peas. You don't have to see the devil. You can just, you know, let me just tell you the story. I mean, I'll tell you when I did teach him, I was like, the devil. I mean, all of that imagery really, really came home. All, all those great images. I mean, that I just couldn't get enough. I think I sat through it twice the first time I saw it. By the time I got to high school, I knew I didn't want to be an actor anymore. I wanted to do behind the scenes and, you know, got involved with the... You know, I, I was fortunate that the the head of the theater department at the high school I went to was a really good, you know, probably like a, a solid, you know, off-Broadway guy, smart guy. So even when you get all the stock musicals, you know, he, he, he always sort of got into, um, I love Oscar Hammerstein as a person, particularly his politics. Fortunately, this theater um, direct, uh, guy who's in charge of the theater program you know, uh, brought a lot of that to my attention. And uh, so I, I had an appreciation for, you know, some of the stuff wasn't my style in the staging per se, but I, I, the content I sometimes really appreciate on a political level. I started, you know, with Bill to start getting into set design and um, combined with uh, comics. And then by the time I was um, a sophomore junior high school, I was studying comics. You know, I was already sending stuff off to uh, Marvel and DC to try to be published. I uh, was a comic collector as a boy. I had the very first uh, Amazing Fantasy in all the pristine condition. And I had that, I remember the first appearance of Spider-Man, which was really interesting because I guess it's invaluable now. And I knew it was valuable then because it was, when it came out, it was such a, such a terrific comic I liked. And I remember bagging it then. And really, and I didn't know anything about values of comics. I just was very meticulous about my toys and my books. And I really valued it. And, you know, when I was in the eighth grade, I met a girl who was also really into comics. And she coveted the Spider-Man. And she said, I'll trade you the Spider-Man. And I said, what are you trading for? And she said, I'll let you fill me up. And I really thought about it because I love the comic. But I made the trade. And she had the comic. And recently, we were looking up what it was worth. And it's in a, uh, in a pristine, I think what's this amazing fantasy, I forget the number. It wasn't the first Spider-Man, it was before he had his own comic. It's worth, I don't know I don't know if you know anything about this, it's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And someone recently asked me, in an interview, I was telling the story, they said, Amy, you must regret it. I said, no. I said, I actually don't regret it. That's how worth it it was at the time. I would not trade that memory. I'm 61 years old, and there's been many a moment I've gone back and thought about that field job when I was like in the eighth grade. So when you ask that question about how do you make the sex films and how does that all happen, well, this is explaining it. So it's a combination of my own personal collection of movies and art and sort of a little bit of Catholicism and a little twisted brain. And um, that's how it worked. Now, what came first for you? When you graduate from high school, what comes first? Is it the art direction? Are you doing the one sheets? I mean, you've done so many things that I can't even keep it straight as far as the order goes. I had made it a goal. I was going to go on. I wanted to work for the National Lampoon because I started doing a lot of satire and 
I uh, loved a couple of the writers of the early uh, magazine, which was Doug Kenny and Michael O'Donoghue specifically. Michael O'Donoghue, who I'm sure you know, later went on to you know be the head writer of the first five years of Saturday Night Live. He was a major influence on me, and I liked Michael Gross, who was the art director. He was another writer who was heavily influenced, heavily influenced. On name had Bluestone, who did some of the darkest stuff you could imagine, and some of the Terry Southern did a couple of pieces that I really loved. So it really was, I was reading a lot of, of the early editions of, uh, of National Lampoon, and I thought, you know, this is something I'd, I'd like to do. But I hadn't really um, figured how to put it together. So I was sending things to Mad, and uh, I mean, all of them, Mad cracked, any, any, every magazine, and then also, um, I started sending things off the tent house, but my goal was the National Lampoon, actually, I had my eye on it. But there was another magazine that really was number one most important to me, and that was a magazine called Harakiri, which was the National Humor Magazine of France. In 1970, I graduated high school in 71, moved into a a commune with a bunch of similar-minded people like myself who were all into writing and all sort of wanted creative careers. We were all science fiction fanatics at the time, which I'm not now, but um, we were reading, you know, all the all, all the all the usual suspects, Theodore Sturgeon and Robert Shepley and uh, uh, Stanislaw Flam. And uh, we we were all similar in doing that. And then um, I decided to pilgrimage to England in 72 because there was a lot of exciting music happening, which I had a big interest in also. While I was there, uh, I ended up living in London for about a year. And while I was there, I discovered a magazine called Harvard Curie, which, like I said, was a French uh, humor magazine. And even though I couldn't read a word of French, it was so visual. And what they did, which not even the National Lampoon had done, I had never seen anybody do it. Do it. They would do what I would call photographic sight gags, where they would take sort of really wacky visuals of photographically and sort of tell, and they were sort of a sexual bent or a political bent, and they were leftists like myself, but that didn't mean much to me, the politics, because I couldn't read it. Um, but the, um, the visual look... Um, they were parodies and satires, but not really the way National Lampoon was doing it. They were parodying products and other magazines. This had a complete Dada-esque feel, unlike anything I had ever seen. And by the way, Python had already was happening in England at the same time. And but it was nothing like Gilliam's visuals either. It was of its own. And it profoundly, it affected me so much. And as soon as I got back, I subscribed to them. I got a letter uh, from, uh, it was run by two guys. One went by the name of Professor Sharon and another Kavanaugh. And these guys were just legendary in France. And they said at that time I was the only American subscriber. Now, I never knew if they were teasing me when they said that. I, you know, I was... Well, 19, I, but I was told it was their, um, uh, I was their only customer. I remember the first cover I ever saw, it was a young ballerina, maybe, you know, 18 years old, and she was in a tutu, and her pubic hair looked like Rapunzel's locks. It was down her, swirling out of her tutu, flowing down her thighs, 
And that was the visual. And I was initially, I was just hooked right away. In fact, when I, uh, as soon as I got to Hustler and got my job, which I'll tell you, I brought all of that sensibility of Harry Curie into my work at Hustler. The only difference is Harry Curie's visuals were very crude. They, my, I was, from the time I started, always wanted to have my work to be subversive, but I wanted to have a very professional look to it. I wanted to have this sort of like a still from um, a beautiful piece of cinema. It took me a long time before I was able to achieve that. I, I didn't know what I had to do to do that. They were always a little more crude. So that, that's where the influences were. So I just began sending all of that uh, material out. And then finally, I got interviewed by the National Lampoon. I met a guy named Chris Miller, who was one of their editors, who later went on to write. Uh, he was one of the co-writers with Doug Kenny of Animal House. And he was their resident fiction writer. He actually said to me, I met him um, not in the office. He was on a tour reading his fiction because the National Lampoon at that point was selling well over a million copies. It was popular all over on campus. He came to Chicago. And there was all people standing in line showing him work. And I managed to meet him. And he looked at my stuff. He said, this is the best stuff I've ever seen on the road. Because what I did was I took, um, um, I started building a portfolio and I was doing things like Harry Curie. I was putting visuals with one-liners and parodies and some satire and with a sexual bent. And he just, uh, this stuff is, is good. Now, I wasn't the photographer. This is, uh, I was doing the concepts and the designs. And then I would hire local photographers and just financing it myself. He said to me, um, I think this could go. So I went to the National Lampoon and then I got talked to them and they had recommended. I met uh, somebody there, another a really good editor, kind of named Terry Catchpole. And he had said, you know, there's this new magazine coming out of Columbus, Ohio called Hustler. And I tell you, we sort of peaked. This thing is, I hadn't heard of it. They said, uh, it's it's really kind of a, it's very lowbrow and small and subversive and weird. and But, you might fit in really well. So I looked at it. I got in. She'd only been out for a while, maybe a year. And I didn't see much in it. But I said, what the heck? And I, I called them up and I said, who can I talk to about humor? And they said, you mean cartoons? I said, no. And they said, well, I don't know. We don't have anybody that does that. So I figured what the hell. Uh, Columbus was only an eight or nine hour drive from Chicago. So I drove down there and <laughs> the offices were in the bar because Larry Flint had a bar and then he opened up the magazine in the bar and I managed to get my way in there and got to meet an editor and he was sort of knocked out and then I met Larry who was, I was about 22, Larry must have been about 34, he was running around the office and uh, he saw it and looked at it and you know, basically offered me a job on the spot. He he, he What he actually did is he I had about 15 or 20 pieces in my portfolio. And he said, I'm going to hold this. I don't know what I want to do with it, but how about if I hold this and I handed me a check for $2,000, which was an enormous sum for me. And he said, I'm not buying it. I just, I'm going to give you this check to hold this and then we'll see. A few days later, you know, he called me and he said, why don't you come down and let's do this, you know, together. And and then I moved to Columbus, and, you know, that's when the magazine really, those are the glory years, you know, 75, 70, no, 76, 77, you know, it's the peak years. 
on while we were in Columbus and the magazine went from about 200,000 or 150,000 a month circulation to 3 million in 16 months, which I believe is the largest, but not mistaken. At least it was, I can't imagine maybe people magazine when it first came out, that was a huge hit. I don't think since then, I think it was the fastest growth in publishing history from date of its first publication till, um, it reached a circulation that high. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, we were hiring people and the company grew from about nine people to virtually hundreds in a two-year period. There was so much money rolling in. He and I was fortunately, um, I had total economy because um, we decided not to accept any advertising. Hustler Hustler was one of the few magazines Larry had finally he was getting trouble. We had cigarettes and alcohol, and we were starting to get in the way of the editorial content. So, you know, once he met me, he said, you know what, let's get rid of them, not accept any national ads, and we'll just do our own ads. So we started, decided to start a big line of sex products, vibrators, and dildos, and inflatable dolls, and any other thing you can think of. But what we did is um, I was the creative director, and my job was to create these ads. And what we decided was we didn't care if we sold any product, just make the ads look as good and whacked out as the magazine itself. And that was, I was, I really didn't have, whether it sold or not was not the issue because as Larry used to say, it doesn't matter if I put a cartoon there, if I make even whatever I make, it's better than if I had nothing there. But he just gave me complete autonomy, and I decided to just try something really strange. Where I really kind of took all the sex out of it. You have to see these ads; they're they're really kind of clean and funny and offbeat. And I, uh, recently, someone put up about thirty of them, and I was really I really went back and I was looking at them, and I was just recently talking to Larry about them, and he, he was saying to me, "Boy, you had so much freedom." and because look how clean they really were dirty. They were funny. And the odd part, Mike, is within about four or five months we were selling so many so much product. I mean, I think it was then we the we called it leisure time. Uh, Larry's wife Althea, her last name was Leisure, so we spelled them like her last name. And leisure time, the ads we were doing, we were really doing just about as big a business as uh, the magazine itself, with enormously successful stream of income for us. And yet the goal was we didn't really care if we sold anything. I just love that part of uh, my days at Hustler. I love doing it. And the images, a lot of those images really wouldn't have happened had I not ever seen Harry Carey. And actually, um, my dream was to do an American version of Harry Carey. And when we moved from Columbus to Los Angeles in 1978, January, Larry gave me the go-ahead to develop the humor magazine. He said, just begin production. So uh, we did four issues of a humor magazine that was based on Harry Carey. And then um, he was shot that April. So we only were four issues in. And as soon as he got shot, all new, there was about four new magazines all being developed. They pulled the plug on it. We might have found ourselves about five or six more issues. And if we could have, you know, one or two editors, we would have had to. There was one of the cartoonists who was in a decision-making position who wasn't quite on board with us. But I think we, we, we would have had to go. I think it might have worked. It was regrettable at the time because of Larry being shot. Once he was shot, I, you know, I didn't want to 
the day-to-day activities of Hustler no longer became fun because all my autonomy suddenly when the, uh, you know, now you have a little more of a um, three or four or five people were all in the decision-making process and I had been so spoiled. So myself and the director of photography of the magazine, a guy named Frank, Frank, who's, and I left and took along, the, uh, there was a good uh, editor there named Jerry Stahl, who's now became my writing partner. So the three of us, we left and Frank and I started our own studio. And Jerry would contribute work there also, and sometimes in copy. And we were fortunate to take Hustler with us as a client, and so we instantly had some work. That's how it started. Night Dreams comes out 1981. You were, what, the producer and the co-writer, but it, you were not the director at this point. Yeah, if you were to ask Frank, he would say, well, Stephen directed the film, and uh, but it didn't matter. We weren't even thinking that way. We were a team, and the trouble is, there wasn't really much directed Night Dreams. The movie really was all about the visual atmosphere and the look. And the the, the crew for we only had six people when we made Night Dreams. It was shot in 35. And Frank, um, now here's the thing. I didn't actively try to make a porno, but it was a natural progression. The first, when we started our studio, our first one sheets were for the porno industry. So in 1979, X-rated films were still being shot on 35 and still being released for theaters, even in 79. And the posters produced within the porn industry were really artistically awful. Now, in retrospect, if you look at some of them, they're sort of wonderfully kitschy. But at the time, I didn't get the kitsch. Now, the early ones, there's something sort of, they're like cocktail napkins blown up, and so they're kitschy. But they were just really awful. So we decided to take a complete different uh, approach and we treated the whole process as if doing a Hustler cover or an album cover. And so what we did was we would get the title of the film and we never once used anybody from the film. And suddenly video cassettes come out and it's a revolution that everybody needs these box covers. And so they took all those porn covers that of, of the movie 35 and they said, we need to redo them. And when people saw our work, they were coming to us in droves. And um, for the first time, hardcore films, the box covers, were, we were giving them the same high gloss of all the top men's magazines. And uh, at one point, Frank and I were doing sometimes 15, 20, 30 video box covers a month. And uh, they were really sort of visually erotic and they started to look like what our work eventually became. However, and they were very popular. Customers, though, started to complain that the gorgeous models on the box and the look wasn't contained in the movie because we would get a title, Hot and Saucy Pizza Girls, and we would just, we could use any number of beautiful models and we'd, make, we'd set them up like Hustler covers. And that was really new. And they would sell, and then the viewer would open up and go, the girl on the box isn't in the movie. It doesn't look anything like the box. So after about six months, we started getting complaints. You have to use the women in the, in, in the films. But fortunately, we got enough attention from those covers where we began getting called from boutique studios and then eventually the major studios to do uh, one sheets for um, general release films in specifically films that were horror and really offbeat. 
Um, but I'll tell you, in spite of all the low rent trappings that came with the porn covers, I really enjoyed the work Frank and I both did because it paid really well. But more importantly, we had a lot of creative freedom. We learned a lot of techniques. Also, one thing that was unusual for Frank and I as snow photographers, we never used at that point. Everybody used strobe lights. You know, those things blow up with the motor drives and the umbrellas. We always wanted, well, Frank had already shot um, an early porn film for Abel Ferrara in New York. So Frank had some experience as a camera operator. When we started working together at Hustler, Frank started, he always loved my concepts and he began showing me some techniques with the light. And so we began shooting with tungsten light, exactly like we were shooting. We didn't ever use strobe. We used uh, tungsten, which you know, sometimes we would mix strobe and tungsten, but mainly we were using all cinematic techniques. So by the time we started getting assignments to do the horror movie one sheets, they were really looking like uh, stills from horror pictures. And, um, it, it was uh, it was a, it was a, it was a great uh, learning ground. Uh, you know, as we moved into regular films, we basically didn't change a thing. I mean, this wasn't. We took the porn films every bit as seriously as we took anything uh, when we started getting the general release pictures. Some of those surrealist images that you came up with. I mean, the cream of wheat man and the guy in the toast suit playing the saxophone. That's me. I was the toast. And here's the great part. Let me tell you about Night Dreams going back to directing. Now, here's the reason. So there was only six of us on the set. So Frank, who really at that point, he was very good DP. I mean, you can really like, but he wasn't a crackerjack operator. Some of the operating on Night Dreams, neither of us were happy with, but we couldn't afford an operator. So Frank, uh, the lighting was no problem, but uh, some of the operating was a little less than um, we would have liked. But we shot it all. Our studio that we shot in it was at 6646 Hollywood Boulevard, right across the street from Musso and Frank's, which is the oldest, most famous restaurant in Hollywood. And right next to us was The Mass, which was the first punk rock club in um, Los Angeles. And the building, which was called the Cherokee Building, besides my studio, uh, all the other offices had all nothing but all the LA early LA punk bands. Wall of Voodoo was in there, and the Plugs, and uh, uh, the Germs, and Darby Crash, and so there was a, uh, I was surrounded by all of that stuff. So then that and that was uh, really not my scene. I mean, I, I I liked it, but I was already. You know, they were about four years younger than me. They were teenagers. I was already about 25 or 26. But that's how, um, for example, Walla Voodoo got into the movie. They were my neighbors. And what I would do is all these punk rock bands never had any money. So, you know, they'd be painting sets and things like that. But when we did Night Games, there was only six of us. So it was Frank. And then there was another integral person who was with me for years, a boyhood friend of mine named Paul Peterson, who was my construction supervisor, anything I could come up with, he could build, he was worth his weight in gold, Pauly, um, any, any prop, you know, anything I could think of, he could make. And, um, it was Paul and myself and Frank and someone to push me. We actually had a uh, track. So someone was pushing the dolly. 
And uh, we were loading the film ourselves. And, of course, I was designing the sets with, you know, Paul on the fly. So while Frank would be shooting, I was virtually right next, doing the next set. They were all lined up, one right after another. So there would be no way I could actually be, you know, there was no real direction because most of it was um, sex, except for the doctors talking. Um I had to be doing all the visual imagery because that's what was really uh, the essence of the film. So uh, when uh, the film was done, I said, you know, Frank, we we could have just as easily put, you know, our names. And I wanted to use my real name from the beginning. I was always really proud of that sort of stuff. But the reason why I didn't had nothing to do with, you know, um, hiding from it. I would have put it up in neon. But um, it was against the law to shoot pornography in LA at the time and I was afraid they would be knocking on my door and come take me away in the handcuffs you know if they saw my name I would say we uh, it was a sort of a common we, we sort of designed it directed it and did the whole thing but boy we worked really hard and I tell you um, like I'll never forget United Color Lab which was a, a color lab that did a lot of low budget movies I remember when we did night dreams and we were running the dailies, the guy who, uh, an old timer, I mean, this guy probably started doing things since the fifties. He came and said, I can't believe this was a porno film. Like just extraordinary. And the, the quality of the light and the negative it was, it's, a, it's one of the things I'm most upset about is that I don't have a beautiful, pristine 35 millimeter of um, night dreams because it's actually jaw droppingly beautiful. Um, nothing to do with the porn or the content. And uh, I give Frank a lot of credit. It was really what we, we it, it's it was the first time it, it was a culmination of the things we were doing together in stills. And really what it, I mean, when you look at it, it really is just a series of big tableaus with a bit of a moving camera and uh, Jerry, uh, and I just uh, wrote that script, and with the other, but the main thing was the visual. And for example, the cream of wheat, I was always obsessed with trademark uh, products and wanting products to come to life. I had played around with that, and I thought the cream of wheat was right off the bat. And it's so funny, though. To tell you, this is how uh, creative uh, and how, how nice this was. I didn't even think of the idea of the toast until about an hour before we did that. And I said to Paul, I said, we need a big piece of toast. And we had so many props and things like that. And so we just took a big piece of uh, foam. And on the fly, Paul made me the toast. And I just went in and jumped in and did it. We had, I had done something called, we did a parody, I think it was Hustler. Might have been in the Humor's Magazine. It was a parody on Night of the Living Dead. We did Night of the Living Bread. And we had the big sheets of bread. And so I had already done the toast of the bread. I knew that it was a funny image. And then the beautiful thing also about Night Dreams was the music and the sound. What I did, Frank um, went off and started editing the film. And I, while he was doing that, I didn't do anything but work on the sound design. I mean, that was completely my baby. Um, I mean, there wasn't, the editing was, we only shot, we shot, I mean, we were shooting like two to one. I mean, we, we expo- everything we exposed, we used. I mean, so no shot, uh, uh, I think, yeah, we, 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 we shot, it was virtually, I don't know, we maybe 20,000 feet of film or so, maybe 16,000 feet of film and the final film was 8,000 feet. So we just used everything. So 
we were editing it on a moviola, and while he was sort of doing that, I was designing the sound. And I mean, I get people contacting me when people weren't the sound, saying they could not believe how beautiful the sound was in that movie. I worked on it really hard. I wanted it so bad to use Morton Subotnick, the great electronic composer, or Pierre Henry. I wrote them all and asked if um, I could use their music. And none of them wrote me back. And at that age, I said, well, since they didn't write me back, then was, I'm going to take that to mean if it's okay. So I just used it. I mean, I didn't have a copyright clearance. And then I, um, in the scene, the last scene, which is a, Eric's a piano piece. There was a, there's a, a pianist named George Winston who now became a new age sensation. George was my coffee boy when I was at when I was doing the hospital when we first came to LA and we were doing the humor magazine. George worked for me as my runner. You know, he would go and get props and he was like a office boy. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'll never forget it. This sort of brilliant guys running around this, you know, really, you know, and I put his name on the masthead for about four issues because he was so eccentric. And I went over to his house and he had thousands of LPs. And I said, what is your story? I mean, what are you doing, doing this, you know, why? And he said, well, I was a piano player and a guitar player, but I'll never be as good as Fats Waller. So what's the point? And, uh, about two years later, he's the biggest selling solo pianist in the world. Anyways, he was with this label, Wyndham Hill. I just called up Wyndham Hill, and it's so funny because they were like a hippie, you know, herbal piece sort of vibe. And I just called him up, and the owner was a guy named Will Ackerman, a wonderful guy. I said, can I use some of that Wyndham Hill stuff? I need some solo uh, making this whacked out porn film. Can I? And he said, knock yourself out. So he gave me the clearance on that. And um, the Ink Spots, which was the, uh, uh, I was always a huge fan of theirs, and I had all their old 78s, so I, the copyright was long gone, so I just dropped that in in the cream of wheat scene. But underneath it, I mean, everybody who walked in the, in the, into the house or the studio, I mean, they were, I was asking to breathe the last cough. I mean, it was like I was doing like early Pink Floyd or something, or, you know, early Spooky Tooth. I mean, I was just absolutely. Uh, I was making doing my own Subotnik. I was really uh, coming up with all sort of electronic sounds and water dripping and doing a little mix. I loved it. And uh, in the theater, it worked really well. I mean, it's certainly never, no one in the porn ever had attempted that before. The scene with the clown and just the laughing behind it and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, that's just indicative of just how great that the sound mix of a, of that film is that, you know, it still haunts me to this day. Titillation was never the objective. When I got offered to do the first porn film, that was on my, my objective. If it happened to arouse somebody, which I didn't think it would, well, that would be fine. But that wasn't what I was up to. I was really thinking much more about design and overall effect. There's a quote by mom, Michael uh, Henke, and I'm on porn. And, you know, he's a great director, and I admire his work. And, but he has this quote, and he says, pornography, it seems to be, is no different from war films or propaganda films, in that it ri- tries to make visceral, horrific elements of life consumable. Now, I think that's a nice quote. I like it. And I like him. But I don't agree with that sentiment. On the other hand, recently, uh, Heather Drain from Mondo Heather, in one of her blogs, she's written extensively about my sex films. And I remember she wrote 
something which really I thought was much wiser. And she said, despite the stigma that cult, especially when dealing with the adult end of things, can have in the world of mainstream cinema criticism, it is the quality of the work that ultimately matters. It seems really simple, but I never, I was always, I agree with her. I think it's like, what's the difference whether it's, you know, you don't have to make any excuses. I mean, I would say this is sort of art porn because I like that term. I would say it was a little bit of art, a little bit of porn, but my intention was never to titillate. It was really to subvert the entire genre. Of course, the dialogue was essential and the majority, all of the, most of the dialogue um, of the porn films, so Jerry, I would do the first draft and then Jerry would write it all over and always improve it and make it better. He's a brilliant screenwriter and a great collaborator. And we, we, we started together at Hustler and began working together at Hustler and collaborated for a decade on films and theater projects and all. We did so many scripts together, ultimately. But um, the point is, the eroticism and the things like that was never uh, what I was trying to do. Now, if you remember, when I was making those films, which, let's say, was, like you said, the first one was in 81, I was trying to bring, I, would, I'm, I wouldn't call it art, but I was trying to bring some artistic elements into the pornographic genre, because I... When I was approached to make a porn film, which was Night Dreams, I was made by uh, a couple of people each said uh, two guys gave me $30,000 each. And they were both, uh, uh, by this time, Larry was recuperating. He was out completely. But this was the uh, former CEO of Hustler and uh, another executive at Hustler. And they knew everything I did in Hustler always made money. That's the one thing I really have to tell you, my stuff... Besides, it was always very commercially successful, and these guys knew it, so they didn't have any problem. I would never have been able to make something like that and do all of that unless, except they said this guy's always made a lot of money for, for the magazine. So I wanted to bring some art into the hardcore. Uh, we had $60,000, and we had six days to shoot it, but we spent a lot of time in post-production, much more than you would ever think anybody. Now, I remember people say, it's hard to believe anybody would care that much that you would put some, but I did care. I, you know, I took it seriously. I cared. I, to me, the, 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 the fucking and the idea that it was porn, just the way I did my hustler work, I took it as seriously as, as I could. We hadn't completely, I hadn't completely found, we hadn't found ourselves quite yet. We were still developing the look and the style, but we were just starting to get there. And of course, when they saw Night Dreams, I mean, they just absolutely said, oh, this time he went too far. Because they didn't see it till it was done. They said, you went too far. We'll never, we'll, no one will play it. And of course, they were right. Nobody played it. But uh, subsequently, I got discovered inside of playing art theaters. And one thing led to another. And it became very popular on video. And it, they, unfortunately, against my judgment, um, I said, don't sell it. They said, they got an offer for like, they put 60 into it. I think at the time they got offered $80,000 so they could each get their money back and make 10,000. I said, I wouldn't do that. I said, this can have some staying power. And I think it's gone on. I think someone told me it's, 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 it's made, you know, well over a million dollars, you know, total. I, I didn't all have any ownership because at that time I didn't, I didn't even ask for it because I had never made a film before. So, you know, my gift was just being able to make a film. So I didn't have any, um, 
regrets about that. I had, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't interested even. I didn't even think about it at the time of owning it. I just wanted the idea of being left alone to make a film with Frank, you know, and we did that as a team completely. Then um, people were so excited about the same guys that gave us the money. Um, and suddenly people started calling me and saying, can you do another one? And right, right off the night dreams, then uh, we did Cafe Flesh. And for that, they gave me $95,000. Um I'll say an additional five thousand I got out of them for um, the one sheet and promotion and print material and things like that. So I think the total cost of Cafe Flesh to final answer print was a hundred thousand dollars. I shot that in ten days in the same space in night trains, but this time um, I was going to try to do it like a you know. This time I was I decided this time we'll do a real film where Frank will be the director of photography and. I'll be able to direct the film. And I was very fortunate in Jerry and I, when uh, I, I had, uh, it's funny because um, I was reading the village of voice and they were, I was reading about the gate played. That's all they called it. It was an article in the village voice that set me right into an idea. And I said, you know, something with sci-fi, this gay plague and uh, positives and negatives. I just was writing down sort of stream of consciousness, all these concepts and then they just clicked together when uh, we decided on the style and, you know, we decided it should have sort of this 50s sort of pop feel, with sort of, which was then, I remember um, I wanted the music to sort of sound 50s, but wanted to use the, you know, all the new electronic synthesizers that were coming out and Mitchell Froome, who went on to be a big celebrated producer, you know, um, I'm sure you know Mitchell's career, Grammy winner and because Paul McCartney and Elvis Costello and everybody else, James Bond themes, he had did the music for me and uh, uh, it worked out so well. He did a great job. But we spent quite a bit of time on that. And I was also really lucky. I had a great young uh, storyboard artist, a guy by Micah, Marco Esposito, who in fact, sometimes it's written that he co-directed the film. And I'll tell you how that happened was sometimes it's credited he was looking for some jobs as a director and he had said, Stephen, would you uh, mind if I did that? He said, no, you go ahead and do that. Uh, he was my storyboard artist. And because, you know, when you make low budget films, it's, you know, there's so many people do so many jobs. The films wouldn't exist. I mean, without Jerry, it wouldn't exist without Frank. It wouldn't exist without young Mark, uh, uh, who's no longer with us. He died of cancer. Um, without his storyboards that he did, we did together, you know, but he, he was there doing them for me. You know, the film wouldn't happen because that was a shot to shot film. You know, there was, we, we edited shot to shot, cut it shot to shot. And, um, we use, we, we were the first people to use the 250 uh, Fuji stock, which was the highest speed stock that was made. We couldn't afford the Kodak, but we did a deal with Fuji. And I'll tell you, it looks so good. The once again, but we, this is interesting. It looks so good that the Fuji representative was just knocked out. If it wasn't a hardcore, they would have been advertising it as an example of their new high speed stock. Once again, that was Frank's beautiful lighting. But by that time, we had really developed our style, you know, because we had never stopped working. Because of all of our, I mean, we approached it all, our print work and our film work is exactly the same. You know, I mean, we, we, we did all of our stills were, were, were cinematic, 
but by that time, I really started finding myself. I started realizing, um, you know, the use of blacks and distance and getting those slick, important reliefs, because I'm really the right word, but those vibrant colors. And then I started mixing my own paints and things like that. So it was, it was quite an accomplishment for $100,000. You know, we shot it in 10 days. It was really, it was really a tough shoot. Fun, though. Like a fever dream. That's another one where there were just so many amazing images in there. I mean, the three babies all timed out to the music and everything. I mean, yeah. just shot after shot. I mean, so much of it looks like a painting. One of the reasons that was some of the syncopation works is what I did before I shot it. I, I, before Mitch even wrote any of the music, I did a quick track through the whole film. I was using a lot of Elmer Bernstein, the man with the golden arm. I was using... Um, I, I don't, I have a list somewhere. Um, I have a, I'm almost autistic in my flair for the trivia, so I remember most of this stuff, but um, I did a quick track to the whole thing. That's some of that really, that's why that all worked together. How was Cafe Flush received when it was released? You know, you said that it was getting mainstream critis, critics, it hit the midnight cir- uh, circuit. So was that another hit for you or was it kind of like a, because, you know, Night Dreams obviously did enough that you were able to immediately move on and do Cafe Flesh. What happens after Cafe Flesh comes out for you? When I was approached by, uh, by Night Dreams, like I said, it was former Hustler executives and all they said to me is make sure there are at least six cum shots. So it wasn't exactly a high bar. You know, that's all they wanted. You know, after that, do anything you want, just make sure there's six cum shots. I was pretty sure I could accomplish that. When Cafe Flesh was first released to porn theaters, the paying customers were really nearly revolted. In fact, a, fed, a veteran porn theater distributor who did all the pussycat theater chains, which was like the, um, the best theater chain. I mean, it was like where all the big releases where you had to play these pussycat theaters. A guy who ran the chain called me and he said, Steve, I have to tell you something. Most porn customers strictly remain anonymous. I mean, once they come in the theater, they usually don't want anybody to see them. And he said, and yet you managed to clear out the theater and the customers revolted and demanded their money back. It stirred something deep inside these customers, a visceral reaction prompting these rain-coated men to come out of the shadows and demand their money back. And Mike, I consider that a real accomplishment. In fact, when I was terminally, terminally ill, I requested, I said, begin my eulogy with that story. I was the only person ever to like, make porno customers come out of the shadows, come into the sunlight and demand their money back. It was pulled. It actually was pulled from the theaters, like Exorcist 2 was pulled, like poor John Borman. It didn't make it the first week. It got pulled. And these guys had $100,000, and they were really upset, but not too upset because I was going back to my theory. I said, said give it time. It's, you know, it's, it, it's going to find itself. So it sat there dead for six or eight months, nothing, and they just assumed they had lost their money. And it was, we went on and I started doing other things and, um, it was a distributor, uh, some, some guy, guy named Mike Missile, Missile of May, he was a distributor. Somehow he saw a copy of it. He was in the porn business. He saw a copy of it and he was knocked out. He said, what in the world? And he called me up. He goes, why isn't this playing? I said, they tried. He goes, no, this should not be, this should be in an art theater. 
And um, I'll tell you, this guy became uh, my number one. He was like a full, he, he said, let's do this together. And I had ownership in the Cafe Flash, so it was in my interest. And uh, we uh, started sending stills, just the stills, to all sorts of companies all over New York. We sent it to uh, a new line had just started. And uh, Ben Barinholtz, who was, you know, great empresario of uh, he did the Walter Reed Theater. He broke the eraser head, which was playing at the time. So we started sending stills. We're literally off. Uh, we would take 35 work print and send the prints, but we weren't sending hardcore. We were just sending the sets. And I am telling you, I would set, you know, overnight mail them or whatever kind of mail we were doing back then. I was getting calls from everybody. We have to see this movie. I went to New York with, you know, eight cans and I was screening it from, for everyone. And what happened was people would see it. They really dug it. And then that first big hard on would come the first come shot. And they were, you know, got a little weak in the knees because at that time, no hardcore film had ever broken out as a midnight movie. I mean, I don't think, I mean, there was El Topo and I mean, there was Ken Flamingo that had a lot of, you know, uh, scatological stuff in it, but it wasn't still hardcore. And, um, it was a, and of course, not Rocky Horror. And all, it was uh, the, the big ones were El Topo and Rocky Horror and Eraserhead. And, uh, lo and behold, a guy named Mike Husband, who, uh, booked the Landmark Theater chain, which had a lot of great theaters, including the New Art, which was our number one midnight theater in LA. He saw it, and I sat next to him during the screening. And by the time the first reel was over, he goes, I'm booking this two weeks from tonight. I'm going to replace uh, Pink Flamingos. It ran. It broke the house record as for a midnight movie and ended up playing for, you know, well over a year, you know, consistently to sold outs. And then the college campuses, at one time we had 30, you know, about 35 prints, which is a lot of prints for 100000 for a movie made for $100,000. About 30 prints circulating, and it really caught on and caught on in Europe, played theaters all over Europe for long periods of time. It became this sort of underground classic, and then what Danny Perry wrote about it in his cult books, you know, when it was cult books, he loved it. And um, that got a lot of heat and uh, started getting a lot of uh, a lot of talk and a lot of write up. And then, of course, it turned into a big legal case because they. Right before it broke in the midnight movie, the original investors sold the movie again for a profit, and they sold it to a company called DCA. And when they sold it, they didn't have the right to sell it without my approval, but they did. And I mean, they gave me the profit that you know the profit they made. I was included, but I didn't want to sell it. And fortunately, I won a court case and got the uh, the rights, and then we ended up settling where I have the ownership, and I have the ownership of the, uh, what I did was I settled and I have the ownership of um, the name and the characters, and I gave away the rights. I said, you can make any sequels you want as X, but I want the rights for anything not pornographic related, because I had already began thinking that I could make a great cable television show or a great Broadway play or a musical. I really like he goes, how did you figure that? He just recently was saying it's really quite remarkable because right now it's being shopped by, it's going to, you know, it's at HBO and Showtime. A different group of people not related to me at all uh, came and put together this enormous um, pilot project. 
and they're pitching it right now, and we struck a deal, signed a contract, and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, they're having some good luck with it, but nothing's been signed yet. And if if it goes, you know, um, we'll see. I um, I wasn't entirely happy with what they want to do with it in the direction they're going with it, but I support it. You know, it's, it's a little, it's not the way I would do it, but I, I we signed off on it, and we have creative control. I mean, and it's a good deal, so... We'll see what happens. But once again, it's a lost print. We'd like to uh, we'd like to restore it, both Night Dreams and Cafe Flesh, but we're having trouble locating the negatives. There's a gap there between Cafe Flesh and Caligari. What's going on in the 80s for you? I was doing a lot of, uh, oh yeah, it was a very good period for me. Uh, I was very busy. I was doing a lot of advertising work, a lot of art directing, a lot of one, sh- a lot of one sheets, a lot of theater. It was a very lucrative period for me. I was very busy. I was getting a lot, offered a lot of our rock videos, of which I didn't jump at too much. Uh, I did few, but could have done a ton. Got lots of offers. Then uh, in 1984, Larry Flint got uh, an operation. And after five years, I don't know if you ever saw the movie they made, he came back out of retirement. You know, he's out of seclusion, retirement's the wrong word, and immediately called me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming back as a consultant with him and get the magazine back on its feet. It had really fallen on hard times. So I signed a contract with him and spent a couple of years, not as an employee, but a full-time consultant and had a lot of fun and uh, redesigned the whole thing and did some really good work. Did some really interesting sets, which um, most which have never been seen because some were so far out they wouldn't run them. Not Larry, not that Larry wouldn't run them, but this is when Larry ended up. This was during the time during um, Milos Forman's film where he was going at these court battles and doing all these stunts and getting in trouble, which I was right there with him all the way. And he was doing these celebrity photo shoots, of which I was uh, had to be in charge of. And that's uh, I, I was able to bring Frank Zappa in, too, who had called me to collaborate on something. So I brought Frank in, and we got to collaborate on some things, which turned into be a musical. And uh, uh, I said, we're good, Lottie Vanyansky, then, who shot... Um, uh, Caligari, and he was a photographer at Hustler who didn't was not doing anything particularly exciting. And when I went back to Hustler in '84 and did my first job, I knew all the old-time photographers, and they couldn't do what I wanted to do. So I found out he had gone to film school and was friends with Milos Forman and uh, Ivan Passer and New Cinema. I said, can you shoot tungsten? He goes, yes, no one would ever ask me. So we started doing some, and I had all this creative freedom, so I started doing some tableau sets that were pretty mind-blowing. But um, only two really got published. Uh, the other three or four were even too far out. Now, Larry been there, he would have approved them, but he was off in some insane asylum. And um, the people that were making the final decisions were just they didn't understand them. They were way, way too far out. So I was filling my time, and then out of nowhere, I had done. Um, I didn't. Uh, there was a uh, an anthology of horror films. I had done one small segment of a film called Nursery Crimes, and uh, I did once. I didn't direct it. The director asked me if I would do a dream sequence, 
and it looked really good. And then the guy who financed it said he wanted to make a low budget movie at about he had under two hundred thousand dollars. So when I direct one, and I said, "What do you want to do?" And he said, "Well, Dr. Caligari is a is a um, generic name with no copyright. I'd like to use that." I said, "I don't think that's a very good idea because it's such a classic, and you're sort of doomed from the minute you do anything." They did a Robert Block did a script for Fox in '62, which was done, and no one really liked it. And you know, it's such a masterpiece. But he wanted it. And he said, that's the deal if you want to do that, but I'd like you to do it. And so I thought about it and then said, you know, maybe I can make this work as a sort of pop art piece and go into the sort of spirit of the silent film, sort of over-exaggerated acting style. And and that's how that happened and uh, worked really hard on that. Once again, by that time, I was in a new studio. Well, Ray Manzarek of the Doors, um, I had shot quite a few things in his, he owned a big studio where all the old doors equipment was. And, um, which was really interesting because I had done a video for a wall of voodoo and they did a remake of a beach boys song called do it again, Brian Wilson song. And this was when Brian Wilson was still under, uh, therapy and he was kept 24 hours with Dr. Eugene Landy, the psychiatrist. And, uh, when wall of voodoo was going to do a remake of one of his songs, I said, I'd love to get Brian Wilson in this. And they said, well, that's impossible. You, know, um, you have to get clearance from the psychiatrist. So I called this psychiatrist up, and I had heard he was a Sungali and very difficult. Well, he was very lovely to me on the phone. He said, what do you have in mind? And I had storyboarded the uh, video, and I showed him. He said, yeah, this is really clever. And he looked at some of my work. He goes, I like this stuff. And I think, I think we'll let Brian do this. It'll be good for him. And... Uh, the ball of Udo was ecstatic because they loved Brian Wilson and um, they call, I was able to shoot it in Ray's studio. The reason why I'm telling you this story is so while we're shooting this, Brian came in and he the, all the old doors equipment was behind the psych and the old organ, pump organ that Ray used to use in some doors songs was um, behind the psych. And Brian had seen it, and I told a couple of people, pull out the pump organ, maybe he'll fool around with it. And the next thing you know is he's playing like the opening chords of California Girls and performing all of these old Beach Boy tunes on old doors, keyboards. And like, read it to me, you know, so far better than anything I was shooting was this stuff. But, you know, I've got a, I shot this, I was shooting this on 16. I'm on a tight budget. I should have just stopped the shoot and just turned the camera around and just covered, you know, Brian doing all of this. It would have been far better than anything I came up with. But, of course, the record company wouldn't have been happy. Yeah, so I had done some things and I had done a dreamscape that I liked a little bit. I said, you know what, I'm going to make this next film like I do my theater. I'm just going to build one big dreamscape. I had to figure out a way I could make a film for $175,000. It's all indoors no locations and I said I'm going to rehearse it like a play and um, I'll just create a dreamscape and I'll just slide the sets in, in, in and out and I'll use black for rehearsal shots and then I, then I came up with the idea of putting all the sets on platforms because I wanted to have camera movement but you know, camera moves take time and when you're making low budget movies you time all the problem is time. So this had special effects. So I decided instead of moving the camera very much, I'll just move the scenery. And half the time people will say to me, God, Stephen, that's a great shot. I'll go, it's not a shot. It's a static shot. Everything else is moving. It looks like 
Dolly moves, but it's the sets are moving. I prepped that film for virtually four months for, a, I mean, who preps a low-budget film for four months? I mean, I really did, though. And uh, rehearsed it like a play. And um, I was very happy with it. Once again, the color saturation was magnificent. In that case, I really, I actually mixed all the fluorescent paints myself and uh, tie-dyed all the costumes with fluorescent paints. My ex-wife did all the wardrobe and every every scene is color-coordinated. It took a lot of work. I mean, People just some people don't like it at all and just dismiss it. And of course, they're allowed to. I expect you know one out of every twenty-five people to like my stuff. You know, it mixed bag. I could see why someone wouldn't like it. You know, for some people, it looks like you know bad off-Broadway theater, and I think that's a fair criticism. I don't have any problem with it. But what they really miss is for a low-budget film, they miss the technical aspects, which really are, you know. Um, I'll put that film up against, you know, this film, once again, forgive me, I don't mean to sound self-serving because there's a lot of people involved with it, but I'll put technically that film under against any film made under 200000 for color saturation and the way it pops off the screen. I mean, uh, if you're talking about something in a bigger range, you know, that would be a different discussion, but I'm talking about for a film made under $200,000, it, it really looked rich. Once again, the uh, the lab, and this was a better lab, they called me. They said, this is the richest negative we've ever seen. Did you shoot this in Technicolor? <laughs> I said, no, but I tried. I actually did try to shoot it in Technicolor. But at that time, Technicolor had moved to China. I couldn't do it. There are obviously a lot of echoes from Caligari back to, well, the original Caligari. But really, I'm seeing a lot of stuff kind of echoing back to Night Dreams, you know, Mrs. Van Houten. Is this kind of the same Mrs. Van Houten who was in Night Dreams? Well, yeah, you know, we came up with that name. She was, you know, for a while I was sort of, I was reading a lot about Leslie Van Houten. You know, she was one of the little Manson girls who's the one that, you know, really regrets the crime. And people have been trying to have her um, paroled. So when we came up with Mrs. Van Houten, we thought that would be a good name for the character. And then uh, there's something about repeating the names of the same characters throughout. Uh, you know, that's 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 a long tradition. So that yeah, there was that was a, there was no conscious connection. It just it sort of fit perfectly. And uh, the trouble again is. Um, when you're making it, but with one of the things people don't understand with these kind of low budget films, you know, these are non SAG films. So, for example, you know, it's a non union film. So, actors that are in the union, you, you have a very small talent pool to choose from. If the actor chooses to be in it, they have to get a SAG waiver or else just do it under most of the time when they make these films, they just assume they'll never be released. Right. So you you don't have a lot of choice. Sometimes people say, oh, Stephen, you know, the acting could be better and this or that. But they don't realize just how little choice you have when you're doing a really stylized piece and you have stylized dialogue and then you are limited to the acting pool. So you have to go for something else. You try to go for a look and a style and a, a certain delivery. So that's why I had to have it very mannered and I had to choreograph it or else the whole thing will fall apart. And then once you commit to that, you've got to stay with it. Whether you, you, you cannot stop. I mean, once you set a style, it's not like anything. You've got to say, this is the style, whether it works or not, I can never drop it. It's not always easy, you know, and, and, and I am not kidding you. It's, 
that movie was virtual cut to cut. It took less than two weeks to cut Caligari. It was storyboarded to the, I mean, I had every, every lens, every choice, every lens, everything was picked up. It was just snipping ends. I mean, I exposed virtually, I was uh, two to one, three to one. If I had forgotten one single shot, I would have been in deep trouble. Now, fortunately, what did happen though, I got, I got lucky. After um, there was uh, the scene with the cannibal, the, um, there's a scene with the cannibal has a solo scene where he's looking in a mirror and you write, uh, Jerry wrote this beautiful um, monologue. Uh, and it's sort of, he used to write with me what I used to call dream language. He doesn't really do it anymore because you have to have the platform to write that. But he was really great at writing my dream language that I that I wanted. I would do the first draft, and then he would put it in. He would translate it into dream language. I did it, but he did it better than I did. And um, there's a scene where the Campbell has this monologue, and he's looking in the mirror. I did that wasn't in the original. The the producer who saw it, people were so taken by the dailies. One of the rare low budget films where they gave me an extra twenty five thousand dollars and said I could shoot two more scenes. Both scenes with the cannibal. I shot that one and I shot the scene where he's being interrogated by Dr. Caligari with in the electric chair. Yeah, I was very lucky to do that. And then um the special effect with the tongue and the uh that was very difficult also to do and pull together. But I did all the special effects separate. You know, you didn't do the, I, 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 I back those one right after another. So, because they're, they take forever because they're all practical effects. You know, it takes forever to pull those off. I know it's not polite to ask how the sausage is made, but that tongue, how was that effect done? That, that was a puppet. That's all. It was, um, I designed, I drew, I designed, gave the design to Kenny, uh, no one's guy's name. He, he he and his team, they made it a I, I, I It was written a latex door with oozing sores that open up and candy, bright colored candy comes out with a giant tongue. And the giant tongue was virtually a latex puppet and a puppeteer was behind it and just operating it. He actually wore it in his hands. Yeah, and the uh, flesh door was, was beautifully hand-painted latex. It was it was stagecraft. It was very uh, theatrical stagecraft. It was all my stage background. I mean, it could have been done live on a stage. I mean, what you saw in the film, there was no no opticals, nothing. There wasn't a single optical in the entire movie. There were some reversal shots and some of the special effects, um, a few reversal shots, but that's it. Even this new film I'm doing, which is very heavily special effects, I hope to do the, all of them the same way, all practical effects. I don't want to do any um, computer-generated imagery at all. I want to do all practical effects and expressionistic puppetry. I'm not a big fan of the CGI effects, only in that I want the personality of the style of the film to fit the effects and maybe mix a little bit, but I'm hopefully, um, what I, how I've laid it out, I'm doing it uh, the old-fashioned way. You talked about the rights for Cafe Flesh and Night Dreams and how those mm-hmm. are kind of tied up and everything. What about... Dr. Caligari. Well, Dr. Caligari, when the Lestrange Festival in Paris had a retrospective of my films uh, a year ago, October, which was remarkably fun and successful. I have been offered a lot, but this is my that's my favorite film festival. I'll say, well, I love Toronto. I love Midnight Madness because 
Dr. Caligari was an opening night feature and Noah Cowan, who now runs all festival. He was running Midnight Madness and he booked Caligari and it went over so well. I like Midnight Madness in Toronto, but the Lestrange Festival is my favorite festival. And they did a, uh, a five-day retrospective, and I mean, I had an enormous turnout, and I was very pleased because the audience was all in their early 20s, and I was sort of blown away. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. must have done 20 interviews. Finally, I was asking, where are all these young girls? And then people 21, 22, how do they know movies for these 25-year-old you know, cult films? And how do they even find them? And it turns out, most of them had never actually seen the films. What they do is they are very popular in clubs all over Europe. They project them in nightclubs and they put like, you know, dance to them and they project all the images on the screen. And then they have them in stream name, you know, flashing and then they have the images projecting on the wall. So they, that's how they know the movies. Party, even Party Dollar Go-Go is a big hit. And, and all of the, uh, all the sex films are, uh, and even Caligari. And that, it, I mean, that's, I loved it. I loved the fact. And even when we had the 35th, the 35th anniversary of Cafe Flesh in Los Angeles, Jerry and I were invited. Um, we, we, we kind of co-hosted it. Enormously fun, really successful. It was packed. And I would say the average age was about 25. I mean, it was lined up with so many young, young people and film students. And you know, that, that was terrific to see. Most of the time you see something of your own age and you, know, you go to a concert or something with somebody from that generation, everybody has to show their AARP card before they can get in. But this was packed. I mean, there was really no, everybody was under 30, which really appeals to me. Okay, so when I went to France, I needed a beautiful print of Dr. Caligari. I wanted to show it in 35. And it was made by a low-budget porn company, and the guy wanted to get into legitimate movies. The guy that bankrolled gave me the $200,000 to do Dr. Caligari, okay? A company called Excalibur Films. They were in the porn video distribution business. And he had a big facility, and we um, he had a real interest in getting into the film business. And... Once he gave me the Caligari title, I made the film. He went along with it and a little hesitant. He read read the script and I remember this is funny. I'll get to I will get to the print, but this is funny. It you know, he's reading the script and it says interior Mrs. Van Houten's living room. She's sitting there watching television. And the first day of the shoot he shows up. And now I've got these big dreamscapes up and I've got the television, I've got her sitting there. And there's a swamp in the back and these trees. And he's standing on the set looking at me and he said, Stephen, you know, are you shooting Mrs. Van Houten in her living room with the television? I said, yeah. She goes, well, he goes, where's the living room? I said, you're standing in it. <laughs> it's like this pond full of green sludge. <laughs> I go, this is the living room. And he goes, but there's no ceiling, there's no walls. I said, well, I'm just going to slide in black you know, big black flats for reversal shots. It's going to work, believe me. He turned out to be a pretty good sport, all things considered. You know, I sort of had to save him from himself throughout the 
say, oh my God, sometimes I wouldn't twist it. I, 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 was, I love collaborating and love to hear other people's ideas. But in this case, I had to protect this man from himself because I knew this film, the only market it possibly could have would be as a, a low budget, fun film. Some people said that they would, they have been criticized before. Is it even on his way to make a cult film? I never knew what that meant. I had $200,000 to make a movie. This is what I do. I mean, I didn't go out of my way to make a call film. I don't know how to, this is what I do. It's, 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 it's not, no one went out of their way to try to make a call film. You just sort of, you would have a little bit of money and you're an art director and a designer and you've got these limitations. So, you know, you, you make this film anyways. Um, so you have to protect them from himself. Saying if you expect to get any kind of theatrical distribution, you've got to stay true to. You've got to keep it consistent. So, anyways, by the time the film was done, it it did really well. It went to con, got picked up. That's when it got picked up by uh, the lot of the festival programmers, and then Noah picked it up as a uh, selection of Midnight Madness, and then it went from there. And that weekend of that festival, we we went to Toronto. We had 200,000 into it. And Jay Scott, who's the biggest interviewer there, gave us a beautiful review. It sold out, did very well. And by the time we left Toronto, we left with about $750,000 in signed contracts. And he was ecstatic. He said, this is the best business. I can't even believe how great this business is. Because you make these crazy low-budget movies for a couple of thousand, and you triple your money like right away. And people were trying to explain that's not the way it usually happens. <laughs> it doesn't. You know, and he said, yeah, and he goes, you make these uh, weird movies and they make some money. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. I made one called Cafe Flesh for 100000 It's probably made about $2 million. Yeah, it's, um, I said, but it doesn't really usually happen that way. So he 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 uh, had the prints and um, then, but by that time there was really, uh, DVDs had come in and there was really no midnight movies anymore. It played uh, select showing, select theaters. But it never had the theatrical run. It went underground right away. We were very fortunate that we sold territories. We bit seven hundred thousand came from like fifty thousand from Italy, forty thousand from it all added up, and we got to sold the video rights to individual. We hired somebody. That's how that accumulated. But it actually never got the release it was supposed to have. It never had a proper release. But there were about fifteen prints, maybe eighteen beautiful prints. So immediately we uh, we had written this other script called Rapid Eye Movement, like I was telling you, and he had the money and he was ready to he wanted to give it to me, but then he had decided, This is so easy, why do I need sleep and I'll make my own film? Which I could understand. But unfortunately it was a bad mistake because he made the film and he never could get it released and ended up going out of the business. And sold Excalibur and the people that own it now, they still make these, they don't make X films, but they distribute X films. So I had no contact with them for years. I was getting no royalties. I had had sold, I had sold my share out when I got sick. And then when Lestrange said, we'd love to have a 35 millimeter print or a Blu-ray. And I was determined to bring to Paris beautiful copies of all of my stuff. Fortunately, we had them pristine, um, three-quarter video with French subtitles of Cafe Flesh. Night Dreams, I had managed to find a decent DVD, which I went 
and had it enhanced, and we really went and made our own Blu-rays and broke down and found them kind of a decent three-quarter-inch master that I had. It was okay. It wasn't great. And I called up Excalibur. They were still in business. And I said, do you have a 35-millimeter print? And they said, we don't have a print, but we have a one-inch master that we made the videos of. I said, well, and I explained who I was. I was the filmmaker. And they sent it to me. And it was a it was my the one inch master directly that I supervised off the original print. So I made Blu-rays off of that and it looked fantastic. I mean it wasn't like projecting the thirty-five, but it was the next best thing and they were ecstatic about it in France. Unfortunately I didn't have French subtitles, so good thing that, you know, there's a lot of visuals because, you know, most of the time it's hard to understand you know, the language is difficult enough and crazy enough in English. So I got approached by many companies to do people want to re-release Night Dreams and Cafe Flesh as a dual package and Blu-ray and Dr. Caligari as a Blu-ray and uh, from some real prestigious companies. So I've been trying to negotiate with these people about this and I've told them, you know, you'll just get royalties. All all you have to do is... Uh, give me the one inch master or help me find the somewhere floating around. I know there's 15 negatives. I would assume the original guy who financed it probably has one. So why don't we do this together? And, but they don't seem to be interested, which I don't understand. So the idea of a beautiful cafe flesh night dreams or Dr. Caligari coming out with a proper release. I don't know if we're going to have that happen. There are prints at the Kinsey Institute, which I could make a dupe negative, and we could start with that. And um, Daniel Byrne, the great film restoration artist, he's one of his dream projects to restore Cafe Flesh. He said, if you could just get those elements. So I've been doing it, but since I started working, since I got well, I've been focusing my attention on the new film. But one day, maybe. Because most people have never had a chance to really see that stuff. And like I said, um, forget everything else about it. If you, you, even somebody like yourself who knows the films, I think you would really see it with a new set of eyes. If you had a chance to see it theatrically in a theater blown up, I think you would be very pleased with the um, technical qualities of it. Welcome back. Thanks to Mr. Sadian and Mr. Stahl for taking the time to talk to us. So, yes, this week we are talking about Dr. Caligari. So, we haven't talked a whole lot about the original cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which being filmed in 1920. I mean, this is one of those films that I don't remember how many times I saw it in film school. I kind of lost count after maybe like the fifth or sixth time. I mean, it's one of those movies along with something like a Citizen Kane, which really, you know, kind of changed the landscape and this, or if not changing the landscape in the 
case of Dr. Caligari, it is one of those movies where it exemplified an entire movement. This was the expressionist movement using drawings, using these skewed sets, using, you know, these. The one thing that I always come back to when I talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is Dr. Caligari himself and his hands. And he has these three black lines painted on the backs of each of his hands so they look like gloves. He basically looks like he's wearing Mickey Mouse gloves. (laughs) And that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Like these, the idea of these long corridors, this whole city basically being drawings and some structures and just the, it, it's one of the most visually striking films that you're ever going to see and that we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of this film really says something this was the film that really kind of exemplified this whole idea of german expressionism this was you know one of these films that really was a, a game changer to me oh yes well i mean that's the thing i don't know if a lot of people realize unless you've studied silent cinema is that i mean even though there were we did have some great american film directors uh, you know in the 1900s and early 20s and certainly people got more ambitious like Cecil B. DeMille and like, you know, Charlie Chaplin and, you know, Harold Lloyd and, uh, you know, D.W. Griffith. But the Europeans were already kind of like ahead of us though, in a lot of ways. And because people like Robert Wine were already kind of thinking outside of the box. And I mean, the box was barely built. I mean, this is like cinema at that point was was bad, was a newborn baby. It still had powder on its bottom. And here was Robert Wine making this film that was unlike anything else, you know, visually, constructually, uh, having uh, basically your whole na- your hero being the ultimate unreliable narrator. And having that as a twist is also, I mean, at that time period, must have been quite thrilling to see. And just, um, and my God, like the the physicality of Conrad Vates just sears into you. I, I saw that film at a very young age, and it just immediately just warmed its way into my DNA. You know, like I just, I've just instantly, instantly loved it, and and found an aesthetic that really appealed to me as a as a film goer. I mean, you can't say enough good things about Conrad Vate. I mean, just that he was Cesare or Cesare, however you want or to say Caesar, it. Or if that, you're from Arkansas. Yes. <laughs> that he was that character, that he was the man who laughs. You know, he was like Germany's answer to uh, Lon Chaney. You know, he he had the gravitas he had the power he was just such a great great guy and he was it's remarkable that he could be even just looking at the man who laughs versus cesare i mean it's just those two roles completely different but both completely powerful and what he is able to bring to a role where he is a somnambulist where he walks around sleepwalking pretty much and he's almost like a he's almost like a human golem for Dr. Caligari because he's out there committing these murders 
for Caligari. You know, he is there. He will do his master's bidding. And I love that. You know, it, it's. I'm sure you've read your crack hour. You know, the whole idea of the, you know, is this film a metaphor for what was happening in Germany at the time? And, you know, it was, were the German people of the Weimar government, were they sleeping? Are they Cesare? You know, I just love that kind of stuff. And it was just, it, it's a fun way to read this film. I don't know if that's the right way to read this film, but it sure is a nice way to do it. And, you know, the whole idea that, yeah, what you're talking about with the unreliable narrator, that we're in a loony bin the entire time, which takes us right back to Stephen's work with we're in a loony bin the whole time. And I just love that. And this whole idea of, you know, who really is the doctor, who's the patient, you know, and, and, and who is, uh, who's trapped inside and who's outside you know are the lunatics in charge of the asylum or not yes well and i mean to me it's always such a ballsy move when you make a film that purposely you do not have one character who is like quote-unquote sane or middle of the road enough for the average viewer to be like oh that's the every man or that's the every woman that's who i'm going to identify with this is not norma ray okay like this is this is this is german expressionism this is american surrealism and i mean nothing against i mean norma ray is a great film but but you know to me it's always a bold move when a when a filmmaker does that and both films did that because i mean you know with cabinet you think it's francis but then to pull the rug out and be like nope you know you were you were allying yourself with a mentally ill man. And to me, that's almost like a subconscious fear more so than a straight out terror sort of shiver in, with typical horror, because that's making the viewer think, well, shit, what if I'm crazy? Can I trust my own narration? Can I trust somebody I love's narration? I mean, it can, it can plant a lot of very interesting, questionable seeds in one's brain. We're going to talk a little bit more about music in a bit here, but of course I was thrilled the first time that I saw <laughs> the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in film school, and they get to this moment where Cesare, whoever, is carrying away the woman, and I'm just like, oh my god, that's the cover of the Bella Lugosi's Dead Symbol. <laughs> oh yes, you you can you can tell us old school goths uh, out pretty easily. Music and great imagery are just such great bedfellows, and um, which is you know another great thing about Sadian. It's just you know right down to having musicians being a part of it, of the process and. Um, yeah, even helping out in building sets. I mean, how fantastic. There's actually a really kind of obscure musician. There's two cult musicians in the film itself as asylum patients. Three. Now, actually three, because you have Jennifer Miro, who, who's Mrs. Koontz, who's the, the blonde that goes, chinchilla, chinchilla. The, she's the chinchilla lady. She was in The Nuns, which The Nuns were a classic L.A. punk band in the 70s and um, and you had Texacala Jones who was in Tex and the Horseheads who were affiliated with the Gun Club and both great bands and then you had Lori Shaco who did the main song that was used in Elvira Mistress of the Dark the movie you're digging there hey. man that's great <laughs> do I win a prize <laughs> what, <laughs> what do I get do I get the caddy <laughs> I'm doing some research on this film and I'm like, okay, yeah, there was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920. I know that there are things like, um, you know, Caligari's Cure or the cabinet of Dr. Ramirez. So people have riffed on this film before, have riffed on the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You know, there's a great 
video that Rob Zombie did for Living Dead Girl, which is basically a remake of, uh, it's like a mini version of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Just brilliant stuff. Looks fantastic. Then I run across the 1962 version of The Cabinet of Caligari, which is a very loose adaptation. Let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's an insane asylum. There's somebody named Dr. Caligari. That's about it. You know? <laughs> that's, that's as good as it's going to get. But, it... <laughs> uh, but I do have to say, it, it's a very interesting film. Um, there's some good things going on in there. And the one thing that got me, I'm watching the preview for it and, you know, talking about uh, seeing the Bauhaus cover um, as I'm watching the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Here I am watching the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 1962 preview. And all of a sudden, Dan O'Hurley, the old man from RoboCop, starts spouting these lines. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I've heard this before. I've heard this hundreds of times. Where have I heard this? How old were you when you first let a man make love to you? Next, who was he? Next, how did you feel at the time? Next, how did you feel afterward? What did you feel? What did you think? Were you pleased, frightened, ecstatic, disgusted? What did he say? What words did you speak? That's what I want to know. Now, tell me. Now, now, all of it. Now, tell me. Yes! They use this for the Get Down, Make Love cover by Nine Inch Nails. (laughs) And I'm just like... Wow. And I never knew in my life where that came from. And that's just always such a strange experience. There's got to be, speaking of the Germans, there has to be a word in German for when somebody finally gets the source of a sample that they've heard so many times. You know, it seems like the Germans would have a good word for that. Oh, well, I, as somebody who took a year and a half of German back in my college days, there probably is, there is a word for almost everything. The German language is an amazing amalgam. Like, well, they'll just stack words upon words to create a new word. I mean, more, more so than the English. Um, sadly, my Deutsche, my Deutsche is nicht so gut, so I cannot help you. <laughs> I cannot help you too much with that, but, uh, but I have no doubt. Placing sampling, you know, I know that sampling's been going on for a long time. Things like, you know, the Dickie Goodman, Mr. Jaws song, you know, these kind of things. There, there have been samples, in quotes, for years, Um, but, you know, mostly taking place, you know, or starting in earnest in the late 80s, let's say. So maybe just because of the timeline and everything, we can reclaim a word and use it for what I'm talking about, this experience, and just call it Farfignugan. (laughs) It's more than just a car. It's an experience. Where have I heard that sample before? Oh, Farfig Nugan. Nugan. Oh, that's that's perfect. You know, it's like it's Burma Shave too. Burma Shave's a favorite phrase of mine. So, but yeah, well, certainly, I'm surprised that uh, there haven't been more bands that have sampled Dr. Calgary because, uh, or or just Stevens' work in general because there's so many great quotable lines. Oh yeah, so I mean, the preview for this movie is just rife with stuff, and it it was hilarious seeing the preview and how they actually use cut-ins from uh, movie reviews in the previews, which I've never seen that before, ever, really. I've seen in previews where they'll do the quotes from different critics. You know, critics say, this is far better than Cats. I want to see this again and again. 
<laughs> that was really strange because I was I when I first saw that trailer on YouTube, I was like that guy from MTV because I remembered seeing him yeah, on TV when I was a kid, and so I was like, oh, that's that's cool. And I mean, the film apparently, according at least to the Joseph Robertson interview in Fangoria, the film played six months uh, at the New Art Theater on Santa Monica Boulevard played six months straight, which is pretty, you know, certainly not bad for an independent film. Of course, with Robertson, I'm not sure how reliable, you want to talk about unreliable narrators, because um, this is the same gentleman that said he didn't think Stephen would be a good director for a comedy, which makes no sense to me, because, I mean, there's like, there, even, I mean, even Cafe Flesh, which is a fairly dark film, has some great black humor and some great funny lines in there. And I mean, Calgary has a ton of hilarious. So I don't know. Robertson also directed Debbie does Dallas three and uh, produced the crawling hand. So your mileage is definitely going to vary, but I mean, you know, what, what can you do? Yeah. I think I said Chris Claremont earlier. That's the guy. Yeah. He drew the X-Men different guy from Chris Connolly who got spit on by, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, which I'm, I'm so thrilled to be on the show that is Quentin Tarantino's favorite podcast, by the way. The interesting thing about that interview, though, is he, he, he did have a phrase to describe Stephen's style of directing, which I've never seen before. And he referred to it as biomechanical directing, uh, which he describes, and this is a quote, everything moves in front of an unmoving camera. However, when you watch Calgary, that's, there's a, there's a, a, a number of scenes that have camera movements. I don't. Maybe Robertson was Franz. Maybe he was the, the real Franz of the film. I don't know. I mean, he's he passed away years ago, so perhaps that's an unfair statement. But um, but an interesting thing to take note of, perhaps. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. The way that things move in front of the camera. The way that some characters will slide in yeah. and out of frame. I love that. I, well, to me, it's all just part of like sort of the disorientation, the visual disorientation of this, of this universe that Steven and company have created. Because, I mean, you already have, like, there's no nature. If you see any flowers or these really sort of, like, you know, sort of grotesque-looking fake flowers, everything is false. And on top of that, people are moving in ways that, are, that is not natural. Anything that is natural or of nature has been removed, except perhaps for the strangest strains of human nature. On that scene of Gus and Dr. Caligari talking, and he's in the um, electric chair, and just the they're basically on like a lazy Susan going around with that still camera, and I just love it. I mean, every frame again, you talked about how every frame is gorgeous, and even during a move like this, where you could get some really bad angles, but everything looks so good. Oh. Absolutely. It's, it's, there's a, a great fluidity. And it's funny because, you know, we were talking about music just a minute ago. I mean, the beauty of Sadian's work in general is there's, there's a rhythm. There's never one dull moment or one dull second in any Steven Sadian film. And, um, and I think a lot of that is because he, he's a filmmaker who understands rhythm, he understands fluidity. So even if it's just like a simple scene, where like, you know, like there's a close up where Van Houten's motioning her husband to come down so she can whisper to him that shot of the way that her hand angles up with those fake pink finger, fluorescent pink fingernails. I mean, that alone, I mean, that could be an advertisement, you know, every, every frame counts. You talked about Bob's big boy and the way that the kind of baby faced killer rapist guy at the beginning, uh, for lack of a better term, <laughs> 
<laughs> he reminded you of Bob's big boy. I was really reminded of Argento's Deep Red when he showed up. Which, you know, it's funny. I never thought of that. Even though, I mean, I've seen Deep Red, of course. Like, I never thought of that until until you had mentioned that to me earlier. And that's I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, the beautiful thing about art is everything's subjective. So there really are no wrong answers. Unless the filmmaker himself says no, then, then it is. But, <laughs> but uh, right. uh, I kind of thought Bob's Big Boy just because of the spit curl. But, um, but also because, um, you know, it's an image that Steven had used early on earlier on um it's uh and i can heap enough great words on that spread for red white acrylic dream because you also have aunt jemima and the morton salt girl among others so it's um a great pornographic advertisement tableau of pop culture absurdity and who does who doesn't love that which is going to kind of speak to the uh, cream of wheat guy for Lord, there, you know, there are certain things in life that make you happy that they're almost, you know, it's almost like you've taken Prozac, but it's like creative Prozac. And for me, the, uh, the dancing toast, uh, in the cream of wheat scene is, uh, that as the minute the dancing toast man comes out, uh, which is played by somebody very near and dear that to me, that's right up there with Timothy Carey Cajun dancing. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It, it makes life worth living, you know? I also got a lot of, and I don't think that this was Stephen aping Cronenberg. Uh, I think that they were both kind of just on the same like body horror-type wavelength. But obviously when she has that, as you described so aptly, dill pickle penis arm kind of thing, that seemed like it was right out of a Cronenberg, and especially like her in those paroxysms of pleasure as she's being kind of licked by the TV. That was so videodrome to me. I mean, that was the come closer scene with uh, James Woods and Deborah Harry when the TV kind of, you know, has sex with him. Come to me. My gut is I don't think Cronenberg was like a direct influence on Steven, but at the same time, I think they're definitely the body horror element is so strong. And I mean, I think definitely if you're someone who's interested in that kind of very, obviously very tiny <laughs> subgenre um, and you're into that, I mean, this is a film that you'll probably love because there's uh, both sort of play upon not only body horror, but also the fear of contaminated sexuality which is something that has certainly popped up again and again in Cronenberg's films. Uh, so I think you have that, that sort of uh, relating strain as well. We'll be back after a preview of next week's show. Leo wanted to be number one, America's foremost male chauvinist, so he practiced at work. You keep your job. You keep the boss happy. Capiche? And he practiced at home. I got us steaks. <laughs> kitchens back there i uh, like mine red he was a real swinger on a winning streak to us living out his fantasies the top dog macho man of action then under a full moon he finally met his match what are you doing for the rest of your life a woman of wit he went down as leo came up as Cleo. 
the hell did I get this body? What happened? In a world of sensitive men. It looks like it's party time. It's a hard-hitting, fast-driving, hysterical new variation on the old switcheroo. Cleo Leo, a ladies' man's woman in a man's man's world, where nothing counts like a good cigar. That's right. We're back next week with a look at Chuck Vincent's Cleo Leo, where we'll be joined once again by Jill Nelson. And Rob St. Mary should have found that Tootsie Roll Center. Before we go, Heather, the last time you were on was probably one of my favorite episodes, the Water Power episode. What have you been up to lately since then? Uh, watching more Water Power. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, Acting out your favorite scenes? Oh, you know it. Um, no, no. Uh, well, um I actually have a brand new website. You know, I had the Mondo Heather blog for a few years and I decided to kind of take that and plant a bigger, better, hopefully better seed with it. And so you can go to www.mondoheather.com. I also currently still write for Dangerous Minds uh, as well as Art Decades. This is very timely. I'm working on a book on Stephen's work. So, uh, and there's also another film book project in the works, but I don't want to say anything too much about it uh, until, you know, until I'm allowed to. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to yet, but, uh, but planting lots and lots of seeds. So just trying to kick as much booty as I possibly can. Hey, will you do me one favor? Absolutely. Will you please put a battery in your fire, um, your smoke detector before the next time oh we talk? Oh my god, I t- I unplugged it. I swear to God, because it was it was beeping, and I just took and it's yeah. So yes, I'm so sorry, Mike. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Heather. It's always a pleasure. You know, Rob's got some big shoes to fill when he comes back next week. I look forward to having you on the show again, and I look forward to folks listening to the show again. You know, just a little bit of housekeeping. After we did our last Eagle Fest show, some people sent us requests to open a Patreon page, which I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with, because you have to identify as an artist. And for me, art is dirty and needs to be hidden away. But... I said, okay, I'll go ahead and identify as an artist. Hopefully I won't get thrown in jail for that. So we have started up a Patreon page over at patreon.com slash projection booth, added up everything that we need to run the show and just kind of divided it by 12. And I hope that works. I'm not really familiar with Patreon, but we will also have a link over to that at our website, projection dash booth. Your participation is appreciated, though not required.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.